Oh no. Ooh. What happened? Um, few details, but the road in the vicinity of uh, Safe Haven Drive on West Bay Road has actually been um, closed off. Safe Haven. Safe Haven is like yeah, on so. your way. Yeah. It's like full speed on. No, I think that on the by you're talking about on the bypass. Um, this looks or, like um, I'm just looking at some photos here, yeah. and yeah, this it looks is. like uh, this could be uh, the main road, actually. Mm. Oh, to go there, yeah. There are a lot of speed bumps. I thought. Yeah. Yeah, it's right by the Ritz in the vicinity of the Ritz. Unfortunately. Okay. Yeah. All right. But yeah, it's it's the main road. Oh, the main. So okay. Yeah. So the, that's, that's yeah. There you go. Okay. So if you're coming that way, you probably want to take West Bay Road instead. Yeah. Well, that's very sad. Yeah, it is. No, you want to avoid West Bay Road. Oh, it's on West Bay Road. Yes, the main road being West Bay Road. Oh, okay. Oh, you said near Safe Haven, so that's why we were thinking yeah. it was over. Yeah. Okay. All right. So safe, safe Haven Drive cuts through, right, right by the Ritz, I believe. Is that the road that actually cuts through? I have no idea what roads mm. roads are named here. It's either next, it's always <laughs> next to that palm tree or this yeah. building. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, that road doesn't cut through anymore. They don't allow that. Oh. Anyway, but yeah. West Bay Road by the Ritz, avoid that area is what you're Absolutely. saying. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, that's sad. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so unfortunately. Um, yeah, two car, two car accidents. Um, so I guess people just need to uh, be careful. This morning, no details yet on what happened. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it's just too early for us to really say. But we'll definitely mm -hmm. be keeping an eye on the situation. That's mm. always all right. Um, government is going to be banning single-use plastics. This, oh wow! And they're hoping to do it by the third quarter of this year. This was That's a bit big of news. Okay. Exclusive, yes. During an interview last night with the premier, he indicated that. Um, is is what it's going to be and uh so, people like basically no more plastic, uh, bags. plastic bags at the grocery store is that that kind of yeah deal? i mean he didn't go into any details but um yeah normally that would include single use plastics or like any, any shopping straws uh -huh. yeah yeah already well, what about I'm already using plastic straws so i'm good i use what about, reusable straws what about yeah. like water bottles that's single use isn't it yeah, but you can buy those at the store. So you're yeah, ban I mean, we, we don't have the details and how how the ban will work, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, hopefully people will find alternatives. Uh, you know, there was um, a sustainability session yesterday where they're looking at the risk assessment for specifically for the Cayman Islands, and mm -hmm. a lot of people think, oh, we're a small country, not a big deal. You know, we don't have anything to worry about. Um, and our impact is so, our footprint is so small, but he made it very, very clear that our impact is an impact nonetheless. And we have got to uh, be committed to doing the right thing and uh, playing, being a part of the solution and not just using the excuse that, oh, we're small. So let's not do anything but continue to contribute to the problem. He said that's mm -hmm. not an alternative, not an option. Yeah. Also, you know what? Just, just like throwing things out of your car window mm. onto the ground. I still see people doing that. It's you know, what are you doing? Why? It's, it's so crazy. Or just, even, or just even in general, just throwing everything. Oh, I'm like, done with my food. At the just throw it out the side, window. Throw it on the ground. Yeah. yeah. I mean, some people are just idiots. I, I picked up some garbage on my way just into uh, DMS this morning. Yeah. 
Like, and listen, I know things do blow yeah. around. From the, um, that kind but, of thing. Yeah. But, yeah, there, it's, but yeah, willingly, you need a, you need but, a mindset uh, change up, for sure. But, but whenever they like cut the grass up and down like the bypass, Ugh. you see yeah. all the garbage yeah. from yeah. all the cars that have thrown it out that, the window. I mean, just in general, just anywhere. Yeah, yeah it just blows around. And then oh. and then they they just blow it further down the road, the blowers. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's so yeah. frustrating to see what oh, they and, do. <laughs> and then, when, like, you, you know, the garbage collection comes, whatever day comes to your house, some people, the, like... We we actually uh, have a company that comes and cleans our uh, our bins out so that they're nice and clean, and they'll take the leftover garbage that maybe is at the bottom mm -hmm. or whatever. But I always used to be out there with a garbage can or a garbage bag and clean it all up. But yeah, so people just keep leave it everywhere. Clean, I don't people. get it. Keep K man clean. You want things to look nice. Yeah. Take pride and joy in your stuff. That's right, and your country. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that was a fun conversation. Um, so the police have arrested uh, several individuals in um, a firearm recovery. So kudos to the RCAPS. Okay. They've arrested two women and a man on suspicion of possession of an unlicensed firearm following the seizure of a loaded revolver by the police on wow. Tuesday. Mm -hmm. That's automatic jail time right there. Yep. So they um, carried out a search operation under the Misuse of Drugs Act at an address in Rock Hole in Georgetown, and a loaded firearm, a revolver containing six rounds of ammunition, was recovered wow. as well during the search. So all three persons include a 54-year-old uh, man and two women ages 38 and 34 have all been arrested. Mm. They remain in police custody as investigations continue. Those are your news headlines today. Thank you, All Sandy. Right. And catch Sandy's show on uh, Bobo 89.1 FM right now. We'll see you tomorrow for the Friday show. fantastic day. Yes. You too, Mike. All right, folks. Ay, ay, ay. What a mess. Can uh, uh, uh. I get ready to go live here on radio in just a second? Uh, I'll tell you. Sorrel, ginger, beaver grass, or English. Get it ready. Your morning tea just got hotter. Ooh, honey child. On the cold hard truth, Bobo 89.1 and Cayman's number one talk show are bringing you morning talk like no one else. Monday Rewind, Impact Wednesdays, Caribbean Connections, and much more. Don't miss a beat with what's happening in the local community. Just keep sipping your tea. What a mess. Here's your host, live and direct from the Cayman Islands, Sandy Hill. All right, good morning, good morning, good morning, K-Man. Rise and shine. We got a full show for you guys this morning. Thank you so much for always uh, tuning in and joining us. It's so lovely to see you all. And I say that with all sincerity. I really love having the company here in the mornings. I know tons of people are listening on radio, um, Bobo 89.1 FM. K-Man's number one source now for talk. Yes, you get all sorts of talk throughout the day. So check out some of the other programs. You guys know that I'm certainly not the only program that's on. 
Um, there's a variety of different shows, everything from health and wellness. Um, you know, there's political news and commentary. So do 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 check it out. Um, happy to support the entire station, which gives people a platform to really um, bring their positive messages to the community. Now, you guys know the name of this show is The Cold Hard Truth. So we bring it to you, honey, yeah, cold and hard some mornings. Um, yesterday was a fantastic show. Thank you guys, those of you who tuned in last night for Premier Access. So every other Wednesday right here in Bobo, we do have uh, Premier Access with the Premier. And essentially what that show is, uh, the Premier has an opportunity to, you know, listen to people, to answer questions. We focused quite a bit last night on the environment and on, um, on, uh, international um, concerns when it comes to sustainability. So, you know, in, in the meantime, um, those questions are on the forefront of his mind. And he talked about, for example, banning single-use plastic, which we'll get into a little bit tomorrow and tomorrow's show. So we will re-air that segment because I know in the evening, sometimes you guys are kind of busy. So I think that we will, for your benefit, we will re-air that uh, tomorrow morning so that you can tune in and, you know, you get to listen to that as well. So we do have some guests uh, slated to come on to the show this morning. I'm waiting for my first guest to arrive. Um, hopefully, we're going to be talking about disciplining options um, for children. So you guys know, you know, that, uh, that it's important for you to know how to discipline your children. Just because you have one method in your head does not mean that really that is the best method. I think we all have to be open to uh, learning and, you know, we can learn from other parents. We can learn from experts and see what the experts have to say on this topic, as well as, um, you know, we can uh, sometimes learn from our own life stories and our own mistakes that we have made along the way. So I'm really pleased that she's going to be joining us uh, this morning on this segment. We did have her scheduled to come on before, but there's a little mishap in terms of the um, of the scheduling. So she's going to be joining us around 7:45 um, until 8:30, and then at 8:30 we're going to have Jacqueline Charles from the Miami Herald joining us, and we're going to be talking about Haitian migration and just getting some other updates um, in the region because uh, Jackie covers quite a bit of um, the English-speaking Caribbean news. So um, she doesn't normally put too much in, in there about the Cayman Islands. You know, we're so small, we don't we don't really make Miami Herald news too, too often, but I'm curious whether or not she would have been involved in writing the story on, on BVI and what happened with their premiere being arrested. So get your questions ready for her. <clears throat> Jacqueline is, is an amazing um, uh, writer at the Miami Herald, and we'll hear a little bit about her professional career here in a second. So, um, yes. So those are the guests that we have slated to come into the program this morning. Uh, Dr. Wendy Rote, I believe is the name, Assistant Professor of uh, Development and Psychology will be joining us here shortly. So I know Caribbean people, child, y'all are like, um, beat that child into submission. That's your, that's your way of thinking about it. And most of you will know that that is no longer my position. What, at one point, I used to believe that, um, you know, and I'm so glad this is when I reflect on my own life story. And I'm so incredibly 
thankful that I did not have children in my 20s or probably even 30s because I think the experience for both me and my child would have been very, very different. Um, you know, as you get older, you um, hopefully gain a little bit more patience and maturity. And and if you're willing to learn and you're willing to listen to the experts, you'll see that they don't really suggest that that is that is the best methodology. And I've I've seen it so many times. Like I I like to sit back and just people watch, make observations as it relates to people. And I tell you what, uh, some of them are super super um, interesting. So. I don't know what to say about y'all, but some of y'all parenting styles really need a little bit of adjusting. So Dr. Wendy is going to be here joining us. Um, I just saw that she popped into the studio. Looks like she's ready. We'll bring her on after our morning greetings. But yeah, she's going to be giving us some tips and advice as part of that Children's Month, which um, you know we're still in the middle of. And by the way, do not forget that DCFS... Department of Children and Family Services has had an entire month-long series of events uh, for the family and particularly highlighting your children. And this weekend, they have at the Ark at Kimana Bay on Saturday, they're going to be having <clears throat> the uh, wellness um, seminar. So you want to make sure that you pop in, take your kids to that event so that they can see a little bit um, about what that entails and what involves. And again, experts and different vendors will be on hand. So let's uh, say good morning. Good morning to Miss uh, Vernita. Good morning to Miss Rita. Buenos dias. Uh, Irvin is here. Good morning to Irvin. <clears throat> Wee Wee's that law to Diamond Princess is also here. Marshall joining us from North Carolina. We have Fatima says, um, uh, banning single-use plastics. That's interesting when Art is producer of producer and he owns the island and have government in pocket. Well, actually, you would be surprised that dark primary business has nothing to do with plastic anymore. So this is where, folks, you've got to make sure that you keep up with information. I know y'all love to hate on the dark organization, but um, you can hate on them all you want as long as you do it with accurate info. That's, <laughs> that is really the key, folks. And uh, you'd be surprised what the dark enterprise or organization actually entails. And plastic ain't it. That might have been how he got his start with styrofoam. But y'all have not been paying attention if you think that's how the man still makes his money. So rest assured, um, we keep a very, very close eye on that organization. And uh, we are doing some research actually right now on the whole Calico Jack situation because that has caused some controversy. But once again, the information that is in the public domain doesn't seem to be quite right. And so we are flushing out the truth. And once we have the full story, we're gonna be bringing that to you guys as well. So um, you know, th this is something we should strive towards, single-use plastic. I myself have made some adjustments as it relates to um, you know, my own lifestyle habits. There's certain things that I just don't do anymore. So I was one of those people who used to buy the bottled water. I was one of those people who, um, you know, <laughs> had lots of single use plastic around me. And I really have made some efforts now to try to cut back on that. I, I have a, a water cooler. So I, I drink from the big five gallon bottle. I have, um, cups that I can reuse, uh, even the ones that they look like the red, you know, the red um, plastic cups, they look like those, but they're actually made of metal and they will last you for years and years and years and years and years. And I use straws because I do drink with a straw for more reasons than one. Um, so I do use straws a lot. And most mornings, if you see me here on the program, 
you'll actually notice that I am um, actually using a straw as well. So my apologies for online viewers. For some reason, um, my, my camera is not playing uh, nice with me this morning. So we might be without actual camera, um, but you guys can still see my little caricature there. So Louis, good morning to you. And I think that every single one of us has an obligation to try to do our part as it relates to the environment. And yes, it might only be small, but why, why is the thinking um, that you do nothing at all? Like, I don't really, I'm not quite sure I get that. It's like all or nothing. So either you feel like, oh, we're going to make a big difference because we're China and we have a billion people, or we do nothing at all. And, you know, we think that that's, that's a good idea. I'm, I'm just, I, I'm not quite sure I understand the logic. I think that sometimes a little bit goes a long way. And that's the mentality that we have to adopt as it comes to sustainability and the environment. So Aliano, good morning to you. Um, Chantal, how are you? Melita's here. Uh, Melani, Melani is here, says, good morning, Sandy. Thank you so much for joining us. Miss Iva, she says, I got a bag of mangoes for you. Yippee, OMG. Y'all know I love me some turn mangoes. And Miss Iva has a beautiful tree. Thank you so much for thinking of me, Miss Iva. Um, I had a few this weekend from, I think it was Sunday, from um, Daisy, Miss Daisy Cunningham in Georgetown. She is a nice tree too. And she got me some turned mangoes. And so let's just say that Monday, uh, Sunday, Monday, I was eating my belly full of mangoes. So this is perfect timing, Miss Iva. I'm ready for another top up before mango season is over. So uh, Brother Tommy joining us. Felicia's here. John, Catherine, Derek. Good morning to you, my love. Ervalyn, uh, Sec says, check the wires for connections. Yeah, you know, uh, modern technology, child. Uh, most days it works perfectly fine. And then there are those days it doesn't even want to turn on. <laughs> but um, I think I can definitely fiddle with it as we bring our guests in and we start to have some conversations. But yeah, eh, the camera is being a bit temperamental this morning. I'll just pull out the battery and I'll, I'll, I'll fiddle with it in the background. All right, good stuff. Marshall says, no matter the size, we all have a part to do in protecting the environment. And good morning to you, D-Day Trucking. What's up? All right, good folks. Let it, let's go ahead and welcome our first guest to the program, Dr. Wendy. Um, I think it's Rote. You'll have to forgive me if I'm getting it wrong. Um, is the reason why she has a doctor in front of her name because she is the real expert, folks. Uh, she is absolutely amazing. Um, she is assistant professor of developmental psychology. Her research interests include adolescent parent relationships. Whoa, that's a big one. Communication processes, adolescent autonomy development, and helicopter parenting. Oh my goodness, we'll talk about what that is here in a second. Uh, parental psychological control and guilt induction and adolescent parent discrepant perceptions of the family. Oh, that's a lot of, a lot of words. She received her BA in psychology from Whitman College in 2007, and she has an MA in psychology from the University of Rochester in 2012, and a PhD in developmental psychology with a certificate in quantitative analysis in 2014. Let's just say that uh, she has been pretty busy. Um, so yes, absolutely. Good morning, doctor, how are you? Good morning, uh, nice to talk with you and, and talk with everyone on your show. Yeah, well, thank you so much for joining us. 
So this is Children's Month, um, and we're celebrating that. We have a variety of uh, of different things. There's a wellness fair that's coming up this weekend for the kids where they can do all sorts of mindfulness and Zumba. And, you know, uh, children have been, as the rest of us, under an incredible amount of stress uh, because of the COVID pandemic. And one of the interesting things that, um, you know, has been very, very dear and near to me is really the topic of disciplining our children. And I find, especially in the context of the Caribbean, we kind of have some very interesting thoughts about how to discipline our children. Um, and it's it's just really amazing how, you know, we believe that the solutions and the things that we were perhaps taught or brought up under, you know, 25, 30, 40, even 50 years ago is still the way to go. And it's still the right thing to do. And I, and I think that the methodology for raising your kids has probably changed quite a bit. And there are things that we can learn from experts such as yourself, who've done an immense amount of research. So that's kind of where I would like for us to focus our attention on if we can today. In fact, quite ironically, just last night, I was scouring social media and I saw a story about a parent in Jamaica who ended up in court for assaulting his own daughter because she had drank the um, the last juice box apparently in the house. And he thought that that was a reason to um, physically hit her in the face. And I was appalled by that. I was just like, wow, that uh, seems a bit extreme of a response. But tell us what is, what's, uh, we'll talk about some of the different ways in which you can, um, you know, discipline your children, but what is the overarching philosophy now when it comes to disciplining? So the, the overarching philosophy is that it's, it's better to try to um, discuss and talk with your kids about why mm -hmm. things are wrong and, and really try to get them to um, basically internalize the, the thinking and the values you want them to have. And when you do that through uh, things like what are called structure and natural consequences, which is where you kind of tell them ahead of time, like, this is what's going to happen. This is, you know, this is what we want to have. This is what we want to see. This is what will happen if you don't do what I say. Um, and you let kind of the natural consequences either um, through like, if you don't pick up your, your clothes or your toys, like that they're not clean because mm -hmm. you haven't been able to wash them or something like that. And you have to go to school in dirty clothes or something like that. That would be a natural consequence. Mm -hmm. Or you have um, consequences that you've put in place, like you're not going to be able to, um, you know, go out and be with friends if you don't do these things, your responsibilities that you have to get done. If you let those be the consequences, then children feel that they have some control over mm -hmm. what happens in their lives. Whereas if you um, kind of are very reactant, and use things like physical abuse or physical discipline, then children tend to uh, get, get really focused on themselves and how it hurts or how upset they are. And they can't really understand or fully digest the message that you're trying to tell them. So, so these days it's really about trying to structure things ahead of time, talk mm -hmm. about why the rules are in place, and then let those consequences happen rather than kind of react and mm -hmm. uh, use, use more discipline in the moment. Right. And, oh gosh, that's so interesting. So um, 
I mean, I'll, I'll use myself as an example. So you can certainly tell me whether I'm on the right track or not, but sometimes, and, and I think about, you know, I've had a little bit of training and how to deal with adult situations and adult conflict resolution. And so I think that some of those things can be applied to children, obviously not everything, but you know, when, when you're in a conflict with an adult, sometimes the best thing to do is actually walk away from the moment. So when it's really, really heated, you're upset, the other person's upset, you're extremely emotional, you're not necessarily thinking from a logical perspective. Um, there are times that you need to leave it alone. You need to reflect on what has transpired and then you circle back to the conversation. So, you know, some people have this philosophy that you never go to bed angry. I don't actually think that's probably good good thinking I think that sometimes you have to sleep on it <laughs> you know sometimes you walk away from a situation you sleep on it that gives you time to reflect it gives um, an opportunity for everybody and the situation to completely cool down and then you come back and you have a more meaningful conversation about what transpired is that a good um, way to deal with children as well like you don't always address it in the moment Yes, absolutely. I mean, obviously, there are times when you have to address it in the moment if it's something mm -hmm. that is um, risky behavior for for the child in the moment, like, mm -hmm. you know, they're going to go and uh, burn themselves or run out into a street or something like that. But a lot of times, absolutely, you know, if you can get everybody to calm down, you get them out of that really uh, immediate problem situation and you say, okay, everybody needs to take a, you know, a 10 minute break or we're going to come back and we're going to talk about this later when we've all cooled down. Absolutely. It goes back to that idea of you, everybody, both the parent and the child need to be in a state of mind where they can be receptive to mm -hmm. what the parent's saying and the parent can be receptive to what the child is saying as well mm -hmm. and, and their feelings. So yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. That's that's a, a great strategy. Yeah, yeah. Because I know when I'm upset, the last thing I want to do is to have people talk to me. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, listen, leave me alone right now. Let me process or whatever. Um, you know, sometimes you just have to sulk in it. And sometimes I see my little five-year-old sulking and I let her have her moment. I let her sulk. And then later on, I have a conversation and I try to do it as calmly as possible as well. I, you know, because again, just my observations, when I see parents yelling and screaming at kids, everybody gets agitated. You heighten the level of agitation, even with your tone of voice and the way that that you're reacting to the situation. And unfortunately, children tend to start screaming, crying. You know, you can tell that they're not really listening and they're not engaged in anything that you're saying to them in that moment. So the message kind of gets lost. Absolutely. And actually, just to, to build on that, there's a fair amount of research that shows one of the things that's most important is the way the kids um, perceive the reasons that you're disciplining them. And if they think you're doing it because you're out of control or you're angry or you're just so upset, they they can't listen to the message as well. They don't listen to the message as well. Whereas mm -hmm. if they, they realize that you're doing it out of love and you're calm, but you have you know good reasons, which of course mm -hmm. you kind of need everyone to be calmer in order to get that impression, um, then they can really understand the message much better. Mm -hmm. and, and respond better, even if it's maybe not the best discipline strategy, they are much more likely to realize that it's done out of love and care and concern. Mm -hmm. Good points. All right. So Mr. George is joining us this morning. Um, DJ Trucking says, I wasn't half as smart as my kids. 
And when I got slapped, I knew what I did wrong. So there's this idea, um, and again, this is very, very pervasive in our community, especially in the Caribbean community, that um, you know the way that you get a child's attention or the way that you discipline them discipline them the most effective way is to slap them, is to hit them, is to pinch them or whatever. So, you know, we have a strong uh, foundational belief in corporal punishment. Um, let's talk about how effective corporal punishment is. So, I mean, your, your uh, guest or your, your caller, writer um, it is correct. Kids, I mean, they know what they did was wrong. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, kind of no matter what, regardless of whether you discipline them or not, they usually know what they did was wrong. Um, but a lot of it has to do with whether they're going to focus in the future on um, not doing it because they don't want to get punished mm -hmm. versus not doing it because they believe uh, that they shouldn't do it themselves. They've sort of mm. internalized, agreed with that, that value. And I think typically what parents want is they don't just want kids not to do what, you know, not to break the rules when a, a parent or an adult is around, but they want kids to do it for kind of more internalized reasons because they believe it's important. And that's where that difference between corporal punishment or hitting or slapping and really being able to talk with the kids and have and show them those natural consequences, point out the consequences more um, for that are related to the behavior rather than just sort of, um, I'm going to hit you because you did this. Uh, that's where those, those consequences can really help in, in that internalization. Um, the other thing that, that sometimes hitting and, and other forms of corporal punishment do is they inadvertently teach kids that that's an okay way of responding when we're angry. And a lot of times parents are trying to say, no, you shouldn't, you know, just hit people and lash out when you're mad. And then through our actions, we show them we are hitting or lashing out when we're mad um, through, through punishment like that. And they can get this kind of disconnected message and they can be focused on that and learn some, some habits we don't want them to necessarily have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's really about trying to teach them um, lifelong, um, sort of deeper messages when it comes to right and wrong, like the morality of it. Like you're, you don't do this because, as opposed to don't do it just because of the fear of punishment, because not doing something for the fear of punishment isn't enough to probably, you know, encourage long-term behavior, um, into, you know, molding someone into being a good productive citizen. Because as long as they don't get caught. So if I do something 25 times and I don't get caught, then I'm going to continue doing it. And it's only when I get caught and then there's the fear of punishment that all of a sudden I'm like, oops, yes, I understand that concept of the fear of punishment. But the, the thing is you're trying to teach children who become adolescents and adults that you don't do something because it's wrong or it's going to have some negative consequences for you. Um, but sometimes it's not even about the consequences. You just don't do it because it's the wrong or right thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, very interesting, folks. Don't forget that you can certainly uh, call in and speak directly to Dr. Wendy uh, Rote at, at the number to call 936-2626. Again, that's 936-BOBO. And of course, we've got tons of online listeners who are tuned into the program as well. And you can send your comments uh, directly through our social media channel channels. Um, so 
you know, we, we're hearing kind of what not to do. Now, there's been a bit of uh, research over the years that has actually demonstrated that that physical disciplining of children can have an extremely negative impact. Let's talk a little bit about what that research says. And I know a lot of people use their own antidotal stories. And so they don't believe it. They're like, oh, well, I got my ass whooped and I'm perfectly fine. And I always say to them, it's so interesting when people say that because I say most people who are broken don't even know that they're broken. Let's just be very honest, right? You're the last person to make a, an accurate and true assessment of whether or not you have issues. So I chuckle when people say, well, look at me. I'm perfectly fine. I'm like, mm. <laughs> maybe you're not quite as fine as you think. But let's talk about the research and what the research has said um, over the years about using corporal punishment as a quote unquote effective means of disciplining your children. So there are some pretty strong um, correlations or, or associations, links between um, kids who receive corporal punishment, hitting, slapping, things like that, and what are called um, externalizing problems. So those mm -hmm. are kind of more behavior problems, right? Going out and getting in fights or breaking the law or uh, stealing, do doing things that are against the rules or laws. Mm -hmm. um, and there are a lot of different reasons that the research has, has looked at for why that might be. One of the main ones is actually what's called um, emotional regulation, which is your ability to sort of calm yourself back down in a, a, a time when you're upset. Mm. And one of the things that corporal punishment does is it sort of, intensifies um, that that emotional reaction and it makes kids kind of focus in on that and over time they're actually less able to regulate to down regulate themselves to calm themselves back down in times when they are um, upset or angry and it can lead them to lash out more or to behave more badly in the long term hmm. Yeah, it's it's really it's interesting. It's exactly you know what you're hoping not to do, right? Mm -hmm. But but it backfires. Um, another thing, as I mentioned before, is corporal punishment tends to be linked with more externalizing problems, more fighting, um, because it does model this behavior mm -hmm. um, of of violence when you're angry. Mm -hmm. Um, now, so that's, can I pause you? Yeah, I just pause you right there. Um, so, you know, here in the Cayman Islands, we've been struggling with an issue of adolescent children, pre-adolescents even, um, in government schools in particular, um, fighting a lot. So, you know, oh my gosh, some days it's like five or six fights in a day that we're hearing about. And that seems like a lot for the size of the school population. And I have always said, um, just in my, against amateur, you know, observations, that um, those children are obviously coming from home environments and tumultuous environments where they see hitting someone as a way to resolve their problems. So, you know, the reason why they can't sit down and talk about how they feel or what's bothering them is because in their household, nobody does that. They resort to yelling, screaming, punching, hitting. You know, if you don't do what I want, I'm going to beat you into submission and you're going to do it because I have more or greater physical power than you. Um, has the research shown that um, there's any sort of correlation between communities or environments where you see a lot of that, a lot of, you know, this physical violence um, 
being perpetrated against one another coming from households where there's still a large amount of corporal punishment? Yes. Um, yes, there is. Now, it's 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 kind of a complicated issue because um, in in environments and cultures where there is a lot of corporal punishment, um, there's the the mechanisms, the links I talked about earlier, the emotion regulation, the modeling that absolutely mm. leads to more more violence. Um, there is though some research that shows when corporal punishment is more normal, more um, accepted within mm -hmm. the society, kids are more likely to view it as potentially coming or stemming from love and care. So, you know, if they think that, gosh, this is something that all parents do and they do it because they're trying to teach us, mm -hmm. it can help a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, it can make the links between corporal punishment and violence a little less strong, but it doesn't mm -hmm. totally fix it. Um, the research shows that even in, in societies where kids think that, yeah, my parents are doing it because they love me and it's really mm -hmm. normal what all the parents do, the kids who don't experience those types of punishment still turn out better. Mm -hmm. um, and it, a lot of times, when you're thinking about the, the home environment, a lot of it has to do with um, how stable it feels to the mm -hmm. child as well. So it's not just about whether they're getting punished or physically punished, but about whether they feel secure and loved in that environment. And if it feels kind of almost unstable or dangerous to them, mm -hmm. then that's going to, again, lead to um, focusing a whole lot more on that fear and, and when they're faced with situations, maybe in school where mm -hmm. they're, they're afraid or they're angry, um, they don't have these sort of inner resources, this secure relationship, this secure home environment to kind of pull on to help calm themselves down. And that can lead again to, to more fighting, more violence, especially when part of that lack of security is exposure to violence as well. They view that as, well, it may not be right, but it's the way things are done. Hmm. Very, very interesting. Wow. So folks, again, it's not every day that you have an expert on here um, who can help you navigate these topics, part of Children's Month. So do give us a call at 936-2626 with your questions or comments. So we have um, Lulu, who is on the live stream, who has shared that a lot of experts don't even have children. So <laughs> I don't know what that necessarily has to do with being an expert, but do you have any children, Dr. Wendy? I do. I do. I have a, an eight-year-old and a six-year-old. Yes. Um, and believe me, I, I know the things I'm saying, it's right. It's, it's very much that, um, you know, do what I say, not what I do. Right. It is so hard mm -hmm. to in the moment, not react and mm -hmm. not just be like, oh my gosh, I'm so mad. And, you know, grab your kid or, or slap them or whatever. Um, and a lot of times part of good parenting is trying to recognize that, you know, whatever you're going to do you need to try to do it from a place of calmness. Mm -hmm. So even if you're going to come back and you are going to, you know, in the end spank them, which I, I don't recommend, but even if that is what you choose to do, trying not to do it in the moment when you're just so angry, mm -hmm. but doing it, you know, when you've taken a little time to calm down and you can say like, look, 
this is why it's wrong and this is what's going to happen because of it and mm-hmm. show that you're not doing it just because you're mad but you're doing it because you care and you want them to try to understand something um, that can help a whole lot and so working on that own kind of self-calming yes. that is by far the hardest yes have you ever watched the show um with um it's called the dog whisper with um oh gosh i can't remember his name right now but he's he um talks about disciplining dogs and this Mm -hmm. is going to sound really really weird um but a lot of uh when i would watch his shows caesar milan when i would watch his shows a lot of what he said to me, you could equally apply to children. I'm going to tell you what I mean by that here in a second. But um, what he often said when he walked into situations and people are like, oh, my dog is doing this, my dog is doing that. He would look at them and said, actually, it's not the dog that is the problem. It is you as the dog owner, because it's the way in which you respond to the dog, the things that you do, the, the nonverbal cues, the verbal cues, every single message that you're sending to that dog reinforces the bad behavior, although though you think because you're yelling and screaming at the dog that you're doing the opposite. So good morning, caller, and welcome to the program. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. I'm good. good. I was listening to your expert on the study with corporal punishment. Yes. And the very last um, set of statement that she made mm-hmm. is what I thought, what I agree with. Yes, which was what. And that is when it is done in hunger. Mm-hmm. And for, for for today's kids, it's 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 just like when when cell phone came in. We have that big phone that mm-hmm. we call the fridge. Mm-hmm. In in earlier days, we used to get a lot. Of, we used to get spanking. I got spanking, but usually it wasn't in hunger. Mm-hmm. This this set of this generation is like the the iPhone, mm-hmm. where you have to explain to these kids. When you ask a kid, when you tell a child something, that there there is this one letter that keep on coming up back. Why? 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 So we as parents have to educate ourselves as how to answer these questions Mm -hmm. and these questions okay don't touch the stove why it's hot why Mm -hmm. the fire was there and it it goes on goes on it goes on and when you when you explain and i said reason Mm -hmm. you reason with you reason with them and they will see why the 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 action or whatever they are doing why it is wrong Mm -hmm. And there is a lot of example out there in terms of the internet where you can you can pull up a video or you can pull up something to show the child. Mm-hmm. And for now, I really believe that it is um, you take away privilege. You mm-hmm. take away privilege, and you don't, as a parent, you don't just say you are gonna do something and you don't say it and you don't do it. Because the, the, the kid will put back that in your face. But mommy always saying that she's going to do this and it's not done. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when it comes to corporal punishment, I maybe you are not going to agree with me, but corporal punishment, um, I mean, spanking is meted out mainly by moms. Mm-hmm. You, re- you when, 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 the fa- when a father 
gets into spanking, it is to the extreme. Hmm. Well, let's let's find out from the doctor. Is there any research that points to when it comes to you know the maternal or paternal um, I, I, parent who who does it more and who's perhaps worse at doing it when it comes to corporal punishment? Well, are you asking me? No, that no, 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 no. I was asking the guest. Sorry. Okay. No, oh. I, 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 I have lived it. I've seen it. Yes. So I don't read for that. I don't need a study to 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 yeah. to, to to give me. That. I've I've seen it. Can I ask you a question though, caller? Because yes. I've lived it and I've seen it too. But yeah. I, over the years, have changed my position on corporal punishment. Mm-hmm. Right? Just mm-hmm. because you've lived and you've seen something, doesn't mean that what you've lived and you've seen is the best way. Because you only know what you know, no. right? So because you only know I, what you've experienced I, in life. As I said, I, I told you, I, and, I, and I use an analogy. Mm-hmm. I said, in, 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 in my days, it was the fridge, the big cell phone fridge. Mm-hmm. And now it's the iPhone. What I'm simply saying is that the, the, the corporal punishment and the physical way of discipline, we have to educate ourselves and see that that doesn't work anymore. So we need to change. Mm-hmm. And I give example, you, you reason with a child. Mm-hmm. You reason, the cause and effect. You do this, that is gonna happen. That is gonna happen, and mm-hmm. and 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 you show them. Um, my 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 child was in school when she was in school. Um, six of them, six girls, decide to 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 jump on this table, Mm-mm. and 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 they do it in term. They do it in terms. Mm-hmm. So you know by going and doing it and doing it that this chair, is, this table is getting weaker and weaker. Mm-hmm. Oh, when she finally went on the table, it broke down. Everybody went to the table. The, the teacher, um, this person, jump on the table and it break down. Mm-hmm. The teacher, the teacher did not do any investigation. Mm-hmm. I was told that my child destroyed government property, so um, blah blah blah. She's gonna be suspended, and I'm gonna pay for it. Mm-hmm. I went to the school. I asked the the, the, the the teacher if she asked what happened. She said no. I said you need to. Mm-hmm. So when she when she asks. That was it, six of them on the table. And I said to my daughter, you realize what just happened? Six of six persons took part in this action and you are the one who eventually got all the blame. Mm-hmm. And, and trust me, she understood what I've always been telling her, do not follow. So that is it, we have to reason with our kids and show them cause and effect. Mm-hmm. Corporal punishment for me, I mean, sometimes you may you may spank, but for me, it's 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 no reason, 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 mm-hmm. and 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 take away privileges. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That that is more effective. Because when when you have a child who want to they, they want to they want to go and play with their drones or they want to go on this website and you take away the internet for two or three days mm-hmm. they get it. Mm-hmm. So it's yes. just that we we have to change we have to change and being 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 physical with with kids now does not work. Well, thank you so much, Carla. I appreciate those comments.
Okay. Okay, there. All right, folks, 936-2626. A question there, again, is do parents discipline differently based on if they're male or female or is there any other factors that impact, you know, the use of force? So he said that normally it's not the father who's going to get involved in corporal punishment. But I mean, I read the papers every day and I see fathers dolling out what they think is corporal punishment and other people think is abuse. Is there a difference? Um, you know, that's, that's very cultural. Um, mm-hmm. So in, in some cultures, the moms are more the disciplinarians. In some mm-hmm. cultures, the dads are more the disciplinarians. Um, kind of, you know, across the world, moms tend to be more of the caregivers. Mm-hmm. Dads do tend to be more of the disciplinarians. Um, and because of that, you do sometimes see the discipline coming from dads as a little more severe. Um, there, there's definitely some research that does show that, um, discipline, caregiving, anything that kind of comes from dads because they actually aren't always as kind of involved mm-hmm. can actually be more impactful because there's sort of like, there's less of it. So the times it happens, it's, it really sticks mm-hmm. with the kids. Right. Interesting. Okay, so DJ Trucking says, what about a child that um, has weak parents that knows that they don't have any consequences to face at home when they constantly mess up? Before we, before you answer that question, um, just to conclude what I was saying about the dog whisperer, right? Um, so the, the major observations from him is, number one, look at the owner. So my correlation is look at the parent. Um, it's normally the parent's uh, way of handling the child that is the primary issue and not necessarily the child itself. But of course, over years of doing things the wrong way, your children will certainly develop um, certain really poor um, behavioral habits and poor discipline that then will will reflect itself, especially going into the teenage years. And the second thing he always used to say is that dogs need um, three things, boundaries, limitations, and I forget what the third one was, but basically the exact same thing with children, right? They need, they need this consistency. They need to know that there are boundaries and limitations in life. So when, when I say I'm against corporal punishment, that doesn't mean that I'm against disciplining your children. I'm just saying that there's more than one way to bend that proverbial tree. And the way for me that works is the long-term, you know, constant little tweaks and the bending every day, the developing of daily habits. So every single day that your child gets up and you say good morning and you make that child say good morning and you make that child respect their elders by saying Mr. or Mrs. Or, you know, it's, it's like little things saying thank you and please and, you know, having them think about, okay, you just did this. Well, how do you think that makes somebody feel? Forcing them to think about other people. It isn't something that happens once a year or once every six months or whatever. It's like a daily process and you have to just be extremely consistent in that. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, I don't actually think it's strange at all to compare raising kids to, um, to training dogs or, or raising dogs because a lot of the same processes are at play. Um, we're looking at, you know, a lot of classical conditioning, operant conditioning. These are, you know, psych- psychology terms, but they basically just mean like being consistent and, and punishing um, things that are bad and rewarding things that are good. Mm-hmm. And trying to be as consistent as possible in that, um, setting those boundaries, setting that structure. Um, one thing I actually want to make sure that we we do get to is the fact that discipline, kind of like you said, you know, it's 
the little things often amount to more than the big things. Mm -hmm. And it's also not just discipline, but it's rewarding. It's praising when kids do things well. Yeah. So that's so important for encouraging that, Mm -hmm. that good behavior over time to, to notice, appreciate and, and show the kids that you notice and appreciate when they do, you know, use good manners or pick Mm -hmm. up what they're supposed to, or settle things without fighting or not screaming or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So going back to Milan, I just had to remember what he used to say. So he always said exercise, discipline, and affection. So affection is kind of what you just said, the positive and then rules, boundaries, and limitations. So I think a lot of people are short on the affection. Like they're, they're all about, I'm your parent. I'm not your friend. So my role in life is to discipline you and that's it. So we grew up with parents who we only see as disciplinarians. I mean, even when I think about a lot of people laugh when I um, reminisce about my aunt Lottie, who pretty much raised me. Right. And she was very much a disciplinarian. Like you got nothing past her, but I can, I cannot recall as an adult, I can tell you now that I cannot recall probably any it would, it would be really hard for me to recall instances where she showed affection, where it was like, oh, let me just give you a hug or where she said, I love you or, you know, and those things have an impact on us way more than perhaps we're willing to admit. So it's very difficult if you've never um, grown up in a household where affection was shown to you for you in turn to then be affectionate to your own children. So you create this cycle of um, a bit of dysfunctionality that is then transposed from like one generation to the next. And affection and rewards is really, really important. Absolutely. And, and just showing that you notice, you know, even if it's, even if it's not a tangible reward, because sometimes that actually can backfire, but if it's just showing that, you know, you notice and appreciate the things they, they did that are good, mm-hmm. that can be so, so meaningful, so um, especially, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. You can finish. Um, I was going to say, especially, you know, we, we often talk about discipline as though it's a one size fits all thing. Yes. And anyone who's been a parent knows that is not true. I have two kids. They are polar opposites and something that works for one does not work for the other. Um, and actually there's, there's some research that shows that depending on the child's personality, mm-hmm. some kids who are more, what's called fearful, um, discipline, you know, punishment actually is pretty effective, but for kids who are fearless and mm-hmm. they're the ones who, you know, are going to go out there and jump off the the rock or um, they just, they don't, they don't seem like they're afraid of much. Mm-hmm. Um, actually punishment sometimes doesn't work that well. What actually works best is that affection, trying to get them to actually um, have a, kind of a, a horse in the game. If like mm-hmm. they want to please you, they, they care about, making you happy because they care about the relationship. And so they're going to behave well, not because they're afraid of what you're going to do, because they just don't do that that much, but because they care about maintaining that relationship. Mm. Wow. Very, very interesting. So we do have um, a parent who has messaged in WhatsApp. She says that, um, you know, I'm a firm believer in um, activity listening to children. I think she might have been actively listening to children. I stand strong to showing them respect and letting them know that their feelings and thoughts and expression um, is valuable and they have a voice and their opinion matters. So again, um, you know, a 
bitter Caribbean culture, we say a lot of things like, you know, be seen and not heard. Um, as an example, where children believe that they're just there. Um, and, you know, adults can be at a dining room table having a conversation and the children can't participate. They don't have an opinion. They don't have a voice. Um, let's talk a little bit about that and how important it is maybe to try to make some adjustments and even how we communicate with our children and how we allow them to communicate with us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that it's feeling like you have a sense of control or autonomy in your life is that's important for everyone. That's kind of like a universal need. Um, and even kids have that. They have things that they want to control in life and they have opinions. And it's not, you know, you as the parent, you are the authority figure. And, and absolutely, I'm not trying to tell people that, you know, they should just bend to the will of their kids. But I do think letting kids know that you do want to hear their opinion and you're going to consider it is really important. Even if you, in the end, make the final decision, letting them, them know that they have a place at that table um, mm -hmm. that can help them feel both connected to you and also um, competent and uh, autonomous, feel like they have some say over their world. Mm -hmm. And that really helps um, reduce actually problem behavior. Mm. And the other thing I find, and this is sort of an extension of, of what ends up happening when you're sending your children a particular message, right? So, um, you know, if you do things to your children physically um, and, you know, you don't ask their permission and you don't get their permission, when a stranger or somebody else does it, and it's often not a stranger, uh, you know, I'm talking about abuse here, when other people approach your child in an inappropriate way or they do things and the child's uncomfortable with it, they're less inclined to speak up about it because they think, oh, well, you know, my parents do stuff to me. They might beat me or whatever. And, and I don't like that. That doesn't feel good. But they tell me they do that because they love me. So even as teenagers start to get in relationships and they have a boyfriend who might be physically abusive to them, they think, oh, well, my mom beat me as a kid. And she always said that she loved me. That was the message that came with it. So here now I have a boyfriend who is abusive towards me and who's beating me. And he says he loves me. So in my head, that makes sense. Do we see any sort of correlation between um, you know, corporal punishment at home and, and the type of uh, relationships uh, that people will then enter into as adolescents and adults? Hmm, that's a great question. And actually something I don't know as much about. Um, based on, on what I do know, I would say that typically people who have a less secure um, relationship, a less secure attachment to their parents which often does come from corporal punishment and not feeling like you are listened to or appreciated. Um, they do tend to get into less, um, less effective, less secure relationships and stick around in more problematic relationships, romantic relationships, friend relationships as adults and adolescents. So although I don't know the specific correlation between mm -hmm corporal punishment and um, abuse in romantic relationships, there probably is research, I, I just haven't seen it. Mm -hmm. um, at a broader level, absolutely that's true. Mm -hmm. 
So Vernice says that we're seeing the destruction of our young people today um, for some of these experts and letting them get away with no discipline. And so I want to address that because that, again, is one of those things that people say all the time that is actually completely incorrect. And there is research, actually, um, Vernice, that I hope you'll be inclined to have a look at yourself because you don't have to take my word for it. But there's actually research that shows that uh, when you look at the incarceration rate, for example, in prisons, and this is dating back a very, very long time. This is not today. Um, that the people who are incarcerated, male prisons, um, are the very same people that came from households where they were subjected to corporal punishment. So a very clear link, Vernice, between parents, not the experts, but the parents who believe in corporal punishment, who believe in beating their children, and what you see in northward prisons or in prisons around the world in the incarceration rate. So do you know anything about those studies, um, Dr. Wendy? Um. So to some extent, yes, uh, absolutely. They're just like you said, um, kids who come from backgrounds where there is particularly excessive punishment. Um, so we're not talking about the sort of calmer, I've calmed down, you know, you're going to get, you know, spanked when this happens, but mm -hmm. things that border on abuse, absolutely. That type of corporal punishment tending towards abuse is very linked with later crime and um, delinquency and then going to you know prison or jail um but i do want to speak to something that I'm, I'm hearing from some of your listeners which is there's also a lot of research that shows that permissive parenting letting kids get away with whatever is also really bad mm -hmm. um and i'm not trying to encourage that i'm really like you said with the dog whisperer, right? It's all about structure, consistency, and boundaries. Mm -hmm. So have, have consequences. Make sure your kids know what is and isn't allowed and what will happen if they do and don't do things so that they can make that choice and feel in control of, okay, if I do this, this will happen. Mm -hmm. um, and having no rules can be in many cases just as bad, just in a somewhat mm. different way as having so much punishment that mm. kids are feeling, um, yeah, the kids are feeling threatened. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so, uh, Venice says that she's not saying, um, abuse, she's saying discipline and she can discipline without touching her child. Um, so thank you so much, uh, folks for the comments and Dr. Wendy is going to be with us for just a few more minutes as we start to, uh, wrap up her session. So let's talk about some of the things that definitely work because I'm sure there's some parents who are listening and they're saying, okay, let me try to reel in the corporal punishment. Um, what are the things that work? Give me some concrete examples of what I can do. So, um, coming up ahead of time when everybody is calm, sitting down with your kids and saying, okay, let's lay out some rules. These are the things that are allowed. These are the things that aren't allowed. If you can, even getting them to weigh in, you know, if it's how much time they're allowed to be on a phone or it's, um, you know, what kinds of clothes they can wear or whatever, saying, okay, these are the things that are important to me. This is what I think should happen. What do you think? Maybe you don't go with what they think, but at least hearing it and then saying, okay, if this doesn't happen, here's what will happen. And making those consequences really, really clear from the get-go and then sticking to them. Um, that is by far the most effective thing. And if those consequences are um, 
you know, best case scenario, those consequences are things that would kind of naturally stem from it. Like, you know, if you spend too much time on your phone, then, uh, you know, you're not going to be able to do some other fun things you want to do because you use up kind of all your fun time on that. Um, but maybe there are other privileges. Maybe it's if you spend too much time on your phone, more than we said, then your phone gets taken away because you've shown you can't be responsible with its use. Mm -hmm. um, even if it's physical discipline, having it be sort of ahead of time, like, okay, you know, you're going to get a smack on the whatever if this happens. At least in that case, it shows that this is not something done in anger in the moment, mm -hmm. but it's this very kind of purposeful thing. Um, that that is the most effective way of parenting having these these set things ahead of time and believe me i know you can't always come up with everything that kids are going to do right mm -hmm. um so sometimes it's saying okay that's not okay um you know i'm taking away your whatever or i'm spanking you um and i want you to know that in the future if this ever happens again this is what's going to happen mm -hmm. um so really laying those things out as much as possible Oh, wow. And, you know, I was chuckling um, as you were saying that because recently I had to punish my, she says she's five and three quarters. So she's going to be six in August. But I had to punish her for eating um, some chocolate when I specifically said, do not, she came up to me, can I have this? And I said, no, do not eat the chocolate, put it back. And then days later, I found the chocolate wrapping in her drawer in her <laughs> where obviously she had eaten and she had hidden the evidence of, of, you know, of the crime, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so when I discovered it, you know, I had to have a conversation about, Ooh, what is this that I just found? And then I said, you know, you're going to be punished for disobeying. And the first thing she said is what's disobeying. <laughs> you know? She didn't even know what that term meant. She's like, what's disobeying. And of course, then as the caller said, you know, kids ask so many questions they ask a lot of whys and, you know, you have to be very patient in trying to respond to them because they don't have 35, 40, 50 years of experience that we do in life. Right. So they have to learn. And, um, you know, the best way for them to learn is obviously to have someone who, who cares about them, explain things to them. And of course, sometimes you do learn uh, through experience as well. So um, DJ Trucking says that abuse is different from slapping as a last resort. Uh, Melicia says favoritism with parenting creates a lot of challenges with children feeling uncomfortable in the home. So this is very, very interesting because a lot of parents don't want to admit that they maybe have a favorite child. Mm. That could be a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And there's a whole field of research on, um, on favoritism and, mm. um, what's called in the in the field differential parenting basically parenting differently for different kids and to some extent mm -hmm. you always have to do that because every kid's different but um the basically it all boils down to if your kids understand and mm -hmm. kind of agree with why they're getting treated differently like this person has these needs this person has those needs mm -hmm. it's not so bad if they feel like it's you're treating them differently and it's for uh, and a not good reason, a not understandable reason, just because, you know, you like this one better. Mm -hmm. That's when it's really problematic. Mm. 
Wow. Well, I don't have that problem. I've only got one, but um, I, I can, I can see sometimes again, depending on a child's personality type, where it is possible their child might be more like a particular parent in terms of their personality. So it's just easier to get along with people who are like you, right? And maybe parents need to be conscious of that. Absolutely. Um, I know I, I have two kids and I definitely find that, you know, I, I naturally kind of bond and get along with one more than the other. But that just means that it's really important to try to find those those things that you can bond with the other one over and and try to make specific time. Um, one thing that we've tried in my own life, and I know a lot of people encourage it, is kind of setting aside little bits of one-on-one -on -one time with children if you can. So saying, mm -hmm. okay, we're going to have special time, you know, this weekend or this evening where it's just mommy and you, or it's just daddy and you. And then we're going to do the same thing with the other child. And we're going to do things that, you know, maybe, maybe it's something you have to get done, but you're still going to make sure you, you have that specific time with that child to encourage the relationship and the affection and, and that care and not feeling like you're just neglected or not the favorite. Hmm. Very good. All right, folks, that was Dr. Wendy Rote, who is the Assistant Professor of Development Psychology um, at USF. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. We hope that in the future we can rely on your expertise, but some really, really good points and some food for thought, I think, for all parents. Um, even, if, even if you're done with raising your parents, you're still going to be active as grandparents, aunts and uncles, and so on. So I feel like, you know, in life we can always learn and we can always learn to do better. Um, so we appreciate you coming on this morning. Dr. Wendy. Thank you for having me. All right, folks. So um, have a beautiful day, Dr. Wendy. And up next, we're, next, we're going to have Jacqueline Charles. Let's go ahead and just take a quick um, commercial break, folks. We'll be right back after these messages. At the HSA, we know that your time is a precious resource and want to help you spend it wisely. Avoid the wait and request your prescription refills through our website, WhatsApp, or by calling the pharmacy. Use our delivery service if you are vulnerable, elderly, or a civil servant, or pick them up the next day. Your secure health records are at your fingertips with our My HSA Patient Portal and Healthy Life app. Our nine locations throughout all three islands make receiving quality care simple and convenient because your time matters to us. Recover Personal Injury Attorneys, helping injured people get what they deserve. Did you know that insurance companies have lawyers that represent their interests? Before signing and accepting any settlement, know your rights. Call us today for a free consultation at 924-9999. That's 924-9999. Recover. Your personal injury attorneys are on standby to assist. Hey, look here. You looking for something to do, huh? Are you looking for something to do with friends and family? How about a private boat trip? Enjoy popular locations like Stingray City, Starfish Point, Rum Point, or Kaibo on a trip with WG Charters. Private boating is only $400 CI or $500 US. Take him or her out on an evening date and cruise around the North Sound for that beautiful sunset or romantic night cruise for only $300. Visit WGCharters.com or look for WG Charters on Facebook, Instagram, or WhatsApp, 345-923-1741. WG Charters. My choice. 
At Innovative Building Products, we provide professional builders and homeowners with the highest quality materials from top brands worldwide. Tiling tools, waterproofing systems, fin sets, self-levelers, grout, along with porcelain floor and wall tiles. Our products are 100% guaranteed, promise 100% satisfaction, and beat competitor pricing. Pallets of materials are ready to go. Quick and easy convenience to get you in and out within five minutes. to the program has a comment just in our last guest um says good morning sandy i want to give my u.s perspective this is obviously um on average i find the children came out to be extremely respectful and they can hold a conversation the vast majority use sir ma'am mr and mrs uh, which is completely gone in the u.s i think the discipline level is good here and like the school uniform requirement we find it refreshing to be sitting somewhere and having a child next to you and legally they will be polite and good in conversation. Uh, this is rare in other places I have been. So thank you for making that observation. So some good points. Um, we're going to switch the conversation a little bit. Um, so Aliano says, I roll my eyes. I was beaten badly as a child. If I can say the least, um, but as a man, a grown man, I think, I think, I think time intelligence, and I don't uh, live in the past, just in a firm mantra that I'm better now from the ass whoopings and not dead following the undisciplined crowd truly made of better stuff than kids nowadays. I don't know. Um, uh, I don't know, Aliano. I mean, I can't speak to your psychological well-being, which is something that's that's really, really important. So um, sometimes, like I said, we're not we're not in the best position to assess our own uh, well-being. Like we all every everybody thinks they're fine. Even the crazy person who goes out there and does stuff, when you talk to them, they're like, oh I'm I'm fine. I don't have a problem. I'm not schizophrenic. I'm not bipolar. I'm not this. I'm not that. Uh, yeah, you're not normally the judge of the best judge of your own character. <laughs> That's I'll just leave it at that. And Aliano, I don't know um, anything about you to, to say anything personally. I'm just making some very general observations. All right, folks. So we've got Jacqueline Charles up next. Good morning, Miss Jackie. Jacqueline Charles has reported daily and the English-speaking Caribbean for the Miami Herald for over a decade. She's a Pulitzer Prize finalist for her coverage of the 2010 Haiti earthquake, and she was awarded a 2018 Maria Moore's Cabot, I think that's right, prize, which is the most prestigious award for coverage of the Americas. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Sorry, my camera is not working this morning, but I can see you looking lovely. Um, I love that Caribbean uh, painting in the background. Is that Haiti? Yeah, that's Haiti. <laughs> oh, beautiful. So, um, Jackie, uh, you and I have known each other. It's been a couple years now already. Yeah. Gosh, time is flying. So I met you during the pandemic, um, or I, I think it was during the pandemic. Yes. Yeah, it was during the pandemic. Yeah, yeah the, the very early days. And um, I invited Jackie in the program to talk about the changing face of media. And we have kept in contact um, over the years since then. And she does, um, as her uh, sort of bio says, does a lot of writing on the English-speaking Caribbean and in particular Haiti, because you have um, your ancestry. Your parents are from Haiti. 
So I was born in Turks and Caicos. Uh, my oh, father right. is from Turks Island. My um, my mom is Haitian. My stepdad is Cuban. <laughs> so I am a child <laughs> of the Caribbean. I have family in Cayman. I heard your comments earlier. Yes, I have written about Cayman. I've been to Cayman a couple of times. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So she is well-versed, um, especially in the English-speaking Caribbean folks. Yeah, so. I grew up in it, you know, it's what I know. yeah. yeah. Caribbean girl. Um, so, you know, I love reading your stories. They're always so insightful. And I was just having a look here at uh, at the Miami Herald. I do subscribe to the Herald, by the way, online because the stories are really, really good. Um, and I feel like they keep you busy. You write a lot. It, it does. I mean, you know, so theoretically, I cover like two dozen countries, right, in the region. And um, and unfortunately, there's one that keeps me really, really busy called Haiti. Um, it takes mm -hmm. out like just 90% of my time. Like if I, you know, I might be working on something else. Like, like I'm, I'm looking at this whole issue between CARICOM and the Summit of the Americas and this whole issue, um, you know, with the Commonwealth, right? And, and I'm mm -hmm. like, and it's like you're, you're running and, and you want to run over here and you want to run over here. But this other place is like, you know, it's, 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 it's pulling you. Um, just because, you know, how in a news business, we often talk about, you know, something is a gift that keeps giving. Well, Haiti's a gift that keeps giving in terms of news. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and as a journalist, you know, one of the things that can happen is you can be very, you can get bored easily, right? Mm -hmm. If you're only covering a particular beat. So I've been like an education reporter. I've been a social services reporter, meaning those were the only things that I did. I've been a political reporter. Um, but the difference with being a foreign correspondent is that you're everything. So one day you're writing a crime story, you know, about an assassination of a president. The next day you're writing a human rights story about the prisons running out of food and water. You know, the other day you're writing a culture story, you know, Wyclef doing this new video on Amity. So it's that variety that just as a journalist and just as a person that just sort of keeps my mind working and it allows me not to really, you know, get bored. Mm hmm. Wow. Yeah, well, I don't I don't think you have time to get bored. <laughs> <laughs> I know it is exhausting though. It is it, it is exhausting, especially when you're working on um big big projects, big stories, you know, which I just came out of and I'm still trying to like finish another installment of that. Um, so it is. I mean, doing this constant news. And for us, the Miami Herald, you know, um, you know, like a place like Haiti, for instance, it's 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 local it's local news for us, you know, so is Cuba, mm -hmm. so is Venezuela. Those are three prime stories. But, you know, again, you know, in terms of the English speaking Caribbean, I look for those stories that um say that are, that are trends you know mm -hmm. i mean after haiti i would say like jamaica would be the one place that i, I you know I, I i get to and i and i will sort of write a story exclusively about what's going on there just because one it's, it's a big island it's got a lot of diaspora you know there's all these things but for instance when we had the whole issue for instance when um we just had the royal visit you know people magazine is you know covering from the celebrity angle mm -hmm. um and you know my fellow caribbean journalists are just covering it from you know their corners but for me, you know, I came in from, okay, Barbados did this, and everybody was looking at Jamaica, and now, you know, here's William and Kate in the Caribbean, mm -hmm. um, and here's this, and put it in the context in terms of this whole push as a republic, you know, why are we, you know, independent, but the queen is still the head of state. So that one, you know, you, you sort of, it's a it's an issue that a lot of us in the region, former British colonies anyway, all of us, could relate to. 
Um, mm -hmm. And it's not generally specific to one particular country. You just use that one particular country to expand. Because, look, you know, we really operate as islands unto ourselves. And given the, given my mix, my background, and I've been blessed by being bicultural, tricultural, I, I feel that I'm in a unique position um, to educate um, and to show how we are more similar than dissimilar. You know, I mean, we all eat, whether it's called rice and beans or peas and rice, or, you know, it's just, it's just that one little ingredient that's different or the way we cook it. But at the base of it, you know, we're still eating the same food. So we still had this, this base of an experience um, that over time is just departed in different ways from our accents, you know, how we speak to the accents that we put in food. But I think that it's important for us to recognize the similarities that we have more so mm -hmm. than the differences. Wonderful. All right. So I was scrolling um, some of the articles, Jackie, that you've been uh, writing recently, because we do kind of want to get an update. Um, I like how you say that, you know, we're an island unto ourselves. I feel like especially here in the Cayman Islands that that happens a lot. Um, you know, Caymanians oftentimes feel it difficult to um, even connect with the rest of the Caribbean because we're kind of like in this little cocoon of, of comfort. And it's it's when we when things start to happen, like COVID or, you know, other things that push us outside of that comfort zone, that we recognize that we are a part of a very big world. And in fact, we're very, we're a very small part yeah. of the larger world. And we try to find our place and see, you know, exactly where we fit into all of this. So um, some, I think it was, was it last year that the, um, that the president of Haiti was assassinated? Has it been that long yet? Yes, July 7th. So we're yes. coming up on almost a year. Right. So bring us up to speed um, a little bit on where that is. I know last, I think it was last week, there was a, um, an extradition or a request that was denied in Jamaica for um, persons connected. I think it was wife and, and two children connected to one of the alleged um, assassins or conspirators. Uh, where, where are we with, with this at this time? So actually in Jamaica, um, a former senator who fled to Jamaica and he was arrested, him um, and his wife and two kids, he's actually in the United States. So he's the, mm -hmm. he is the third suspect that is now in U.S. custody um, that's connected to the assassination. Uh, there are three people who have been formally charged in the United States. They are the only people so far that have been charged either in the U.S. or in Haiti in connection to this. Um, so let me just start from the beginning. So July 7th, uh, Haitian President Jovenel Moise um, was assassinated in his bedroom of his private residence. It's not the presidential residence, but it's a home that he was living in, in the hills above Port-au-Prince. Um, and so... Um, According to Haitian authorities, he was shot 12 times. He was tortured um, and, and shot 12 times. His wife was left for dead. Um, this happened, I, you know, I broke the first story on, and the only story about sort of his last minutes before his death. And um, and according to the interviews that I did, he was still alive at 1.45 a.m., even though Haitian authorities have said that he died at 1.30. Mm -hmm. um, so... The case is basically stalled in Haiti at the moment. There have been four investigative judges that have been assigned um, to this. So an investigative judge in Haiti sort of works 
like in the United States, similar to a grand jury, um, where, you know, his job is to take what the police have gathered and to direct them to further investigate and then for him to bring in people and to start to question them in a secret inquiry um, to find out more in terms of putting the pieces together. And then at the end of three months, you know, theoretically, he should come with formal charges. Well, the first judge uh, resigned before he even took the case because of the issues. The second judge had the case um, and then he asked for an extension. And, um, and during the time that he had it, he was accused of corruption in the case um, and having his court clerk shake down some people who were connected to the case. So he was not given the extension. He was removed and he's actually now facing discipline over those very same corruption allegations. And the same judge had also made some allegations in reference to the current sitting prime minister. Um, and again, I, you know, knowing that this is a judge that had a cloud of corruption um, around him when that story was, was ran by a certain um, news outlet, they failed to mention that this judge has come under clouds of, 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 um, of corruption allegations by even some of the same critics of, 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 of the government. So mm -hmm. it's just been a mess. It's a mess in Haiti. Um, the story that I ran like um, just two days ago is that the prison system where you initially had 44 people who were arrested, one died of COVID, four others were released by this judge that had the case. Um, right now there's no food and there's no water so mm -hmm. prisoners are not being left out people are really afraid that you either going to have a prison break or a mutiny inside and among the individuals who are in prison in haiti are three haitian americans who have been arrested in connection to this case and also 18 colombian soldiers so um that is the other thing that is different about this case is that you know the haitian authorities have accused this squad of colombians of basically storming the president's compound and basically taking him out. Um, mm -hmm. They have said, no, they did not, that he was already dead by the time they got there. Um, the Haitian, two of the Haitian Americans say that they were, you know, working as translators, although there's videos where in the middle of the night, they're on bullhorns and they're saying this is a DEA operation. A number mm -hmm. of these guys on the American side were previously DEA informants. One is an FBI informant who is not in custody. We have no idea where he is. And as a result of these ties to former government, U.S. government agencies, mm -hmm. the U.S. Um, a few weeks ago basically moved and ask a judge to um, permit the sealing of certain information um, in this case as it goes forward. So what this means is that, you know, there's going to be things that we're just not going to find out because wow. um, the U.S. is going to say, well, it's an issue of national security and so we can't reveal it. You know, what our sources is telling us when we wrote the story is that basically the U.S. just doesn't want to get embarrassed by the fact that possibly they had um, informants who went rogue. Hmm. And, um, and so this case is, it's very, it's, it, I mean, it's an international who done it. It's very entangled. Mm -hmm. I mean, what is the motivation? I know that some people have written these stories, um, you know, claiming that the president, uh, you know, was killed because he was trying to form together a list of, of drug traffickers. I mean, if you cover Haiti, you know, closely, you watch Haiti closely, it's like, 
you know, you go up to any Haitian, they can give you the list of people with drug traffickers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you when you talk to people who follow this very closely, it's a, it, it just doesn't follow a sense of logic. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, and when we've talked to to investigators who are involved in this, they've told us that that is not an angle that they you know that they are looking at. Um, and so, you know, we're what we're waiting for is for this last suspect who came in from Jamaica. Um, I think he's going to be an important guy because he was in a lot of these meetings. And, mm-hmm. and in fact, uh, according to the criminal indictment, he was in a meeting on the 6th of July. The president was killed on the 7th of July. Um, mm. According to the U.S. investigators, this started off as a plot to arrest, to capture the Haitian president using you know what I know is a bogus um, arrest warrant. It's an arrest warrant that was signed by the judge, but it really has no basis in law. Um, and then the plan by, by a judge by a judge where in what by judge in Haiti by judge in oh. Haiti but it was the but the whole thing I mean it's a bogus arrest warrant but it's a arrest warrant wow. that was floating around you know when you're trying to figure out what this is about it's not clear um but what happened now is that um it, the plan went from arrest him to assassinate him and ask the question mm. why what happened there um so at the Miami Herald we are continuing to pursue this story mm-hmm. um and different angles of the story and it's like a big jigsaw puzzle and just basically putting together Oh my gosh. Now his wife was also injured um, in the attack and she, I know, was flown to Miami for treatment. She has since returned to Haiti? Yeah. So she has since returned to Haiti. She was basically left for dead. She was badly injured. Um, And, um, but, you know, she was flown to Haiti and look, he was you know, killed on the 7th of July. He was buried on the 23rd, which happened to have been my birthday. She was there. She, you know, so she was back. She was at mm-hmm. the funeral and she'd even come back prior, you know, prior prior to that. Mm. And she feels safe in Haiti? Well, the, the way that she has spoken is if that she's launching a presidential bid. I mean, oh my I mean, she all but said it. I mean, during mm-hmm. her... Um, you know, when she's when she spoke, she's very stoic um, at, you know, during the funeral. Um, and so and then she's actually I mean, we haven't seen her in a while, but, um, you know, for weeks and a few months after his assassination, she was basically out and one could even stay on the campaign trail if you, if, you know, if you call it that. Hmm. So it's interesting. Um, there's been, you know, heightened uh, criminal activity in Haiti, everything from this article about doctors being kidnapped and some hospitals are refusing new patients as a way to protest. Yes. Um, you know, there was a diplomat from, I'm trying to remember what country. From the from. Dominican Republic, but he also happens to have been a U.S. citizen. So on the 22nd of April, uh, so it's, it's interesting because <laughs> April 22nd was an interesting day. That was the day the United States government actually sent a formal request to Haitian authorities seeking mm-hmm. the extradition. Well, the it was the extradition, but seeking um, for the transfer of a jailed um, gang leader, um, Germain Jolie, who's better known as Yon Yon. And mm-hmm. this is the gang leader who um, basically has been running this gang called Katsama Ozo from behind bars. And the reason why that gang is important is because this was the gang that basically claimed credit for the kidnapping of 16 American missionaries and a Canadian uh, back in October. And so, and the, and the last 
the last of the group was held for over 10 weeks, right? About 10 weeks. So mm-hmm. this was like the longest kidnapping on record that we, that, you know, at least that we know of publicly, because a lot of times these kidnappings are not reported. And so, you know, he was the subject of a U.S. indictment even though he was already jailed in Haiti for other crimes. But in this indictment, the original charges had to do with gun trafficking. And basically the U.S. had arrested three individuals who were connected to this gang in Florida. Um, It's clear from the criminal complaint that the U.S. had their telephones, one of the phones tapped, and they were Mm -hmm. monitoring conversations between the individuals in Florida and this gang leader in bars behind Haiti on arms that they were trafficking. And these guys, Mm -hmm. the allegations is when they were going out and buying these guns, they were, you know, saying, Saying, hey, is this the gun you want? Um, there's voice messages and there's video calls. I mean, guys, this is a whole no WhatsApp. I, you know, everybody thinks that WhatsApp is so secure. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh wow, they have the ability to even monitor conversations mm-hmm. on WhatsApp. And so he was um he was flown here to Washington, DC. He's already, you know, had his first appearance, been arraigned, he's mm-hmm. been held without bond. Um, and the US has now charged him a second time with the kidnapping of these American citizens in Haiti. But that same day that the US requested um his transfer, we saw a gang clash, a very deadly gang clash erupt mm-hmm. in the stronghold of this gang, um, just east of the capital of Port-au-Prince in an area called Quai de Bouquet. And this will go on for like two weeks where basically, um, you know, you had over 9,000 people were forced out of their homes because of the gunfire. I mean, just all day, all night. The United Nations has put the death toll at least 75 individuals. A local human rights group in Haiti put it at 148 individuals minimum. Um, you've got um, hundreds of thousands of kids throughout the capital who have not been able to go to school because what happened was you had this gang clash happening east of the capital which gives you access to two, uh, really like three regions of the country, and then including the border with the Dominican Republic, and then to the southern entrance of the capital, you already had four regions that were already cut off because of an ongoing deadly gang scene there that started from June of last year that also forced the displacement of over 20,000 individuals. So all of a sudden, here's Port-au-Prince is just becoming completely landlocked just because of, you know, deadly gang violence. On top of that, you've got kidnappings um, that are happening, as you mentioned, with the doctors. I mean, one of them just got released yesterday, but she was held um, for like 20 days. And so she was one of three doctors that were kidnapped, held in custody, and the hospitals basically, you know, they shut their doors. And that's, of course, triggered this very interesting debate. You know, doctors, they take this Hippocratic oath to, you know, do no harm. Um, and so when you close your doors to patients, to people who who need it, are you not going against that? But as one, you know, a priest who happens to also be a physician said to me, he says, listen, you know, a hospital without doctors is just an empty warehouse. And when you mm-hmm. have your staff that's now being targeted, um, it's like enough is enough. And and so, and, and the other thing with this particular hospital, it runs the only cancer, juvenile cancer um, treatment center in the country mm-hmm. um, for children. Wow. Uh, they they also serve kids with, with heart, um, you know, defects in need of surgeries, um, which even that has been affected over the years because it's an NGO that actually works in the Cayman as well. They bring some of those kids to the Cayman for those operations. Mm-hmm. Um, but Haiti wasn't safe enough for them to fly, much less for the parents of the children who are in the country to get themselves to where this hospital was. So it's it's, it's a very chaotic and it's a very troubling um, situation on what's happening there today. Mm. 
Oh my gosh. Wow. It's, it's a lot to, uh, it's certainly a lot to keep up with, but you seem to do a very good job. Um, I know sometimes you're actually in Haiti and, um, you know, we see that, that journalists have been targeted uh, in Haiti as well for both kidnappings and, um, you know, other things. Are you ever fearful, um, Jackie, when you're in Haiti? I, you know, as a journalist, you just can't think about that. You just can't yeah. let your mind go there. I mean, you have to, um, you have to do the story. You have to keep yourself safe. You have to be aware um, of your, you know, of your surroundings. So I was just in Haiti in in, um, in March and April. Me and my colleague Jose Iglesias, we went down to work on a story. Um, we're calling it Deadly Voyages. It's a series, and it's basically looking at all these factors that I just mentioned to you, mm-hmm. and how they are very much forcing people to risk their lives at sea once again. And today we are in the um, the largest Haitian boat migration crisis in nearly 20 years since 2004. Most people haven't noticed it. Um, we're over at 5,000. Um, Haitians who have been stopped at sea by the U.S. Coast Guard yesterday. There were mm-hmm. 800 of them who were grounded in Cuba, 842 to be exact, mm-hmm. um, on a boat. They were headed to Key West. So could you imagine if that boat mm-hmm. actually had made it into the Keys? Um, and people, you know, what's different today than previous, you know, crises is that today people accept that they will die. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as one young man said to me, we're already dead. We're just not buried yet. So it's like, just you, you might as well die trying because you're already dead. Like they just do not see a future. They do not see a way out. Um, and, and ironically enough, they're risking their lives to go to an isolated corner of the country um, in order to get on one of these boats. But while we were there, you know, my colleague and I, what we found is as journalists, people were not open. They were very aggressive. They were very hostile. It's a, become a very difficult place for journalists to work today. Um, I went back. I had, first gone to this region back in 2014 mm-hmm. after another boat tragedy, talked to people. I was welcome. People were very happy to talk to me, to share with mm-hmm. me their stories. This was not the case this time at mm-hmm. all. So, um, you know, but I, but I said, you know, my bosses were very concerned and I said, yeah, I said, but you know, that it, it's something that we needed to know because, you know, in a few months at some point, who knows that, you know, they're going to call elections. And so we need to know that this is going to be an area of the country that you need to watch. This is going to be an area a country where you just can't quote unquote parachute in. I mean, when the president was assassinated, I'm, I'm on the flight going down and there's, you know, now all of a sudden the, 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 the international press, right? They're mm-hmm. all focused on Haiti. They haven't been in Haiti. Some of them literally had not been in Haiti or paid Haiti any attention in 12 years since the 2010 earthquake. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm listening to them you know, oh yeah, okay, we're gonna go, we're gonna get on this car, we're gonna get in this car and we're gonna drive south. And I'm sitting here like, okay, well, obviously you haven't read anything that I wrote. If you had, you would know you're, you, instead of trying to go get a car, you need to go to, uh, to the domestic airport and try to bum mm-hmm. a ride to fly into the area that had just been struck by a 7.2 earthquake on August mm-hmm. 14th. Because going by car, it means going through gang territory. And today, mm-hmm. this idea that you're a journalist, you're a foreigner, you're a white person. So hands-on, it does not work anymore. There are no more mm-hmm. secret cows. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, folks, uh, 936-2626, uh, Jacqueline Charles from the Miami Herald is joining us. Uh, she has a wealth of knowledge and information on um, specifically Haiti, but other areas of the English-speaking Caribbean as well. So if you have any questions or comments uh, for Jackie, please feel free to join the conversation at any time. She is just amazing. 
in terms of how much information uh, she has. And we can't get her often because she's a busy woman. So now is your opportunity. I know to I have definitely... actually a cruise ship fire in Turks and Caicos. I woke up to that this morning. <laughs> oh my gosh. So we'll get to some other bits and pieces here. But just to, to wrap up this bit in the journalist. So United Nations office in Haiti has said, um, and this was an article that you did, uh, that um, three journalists were killed earlier this year, and they're among 16 journalists killed in Haiti since 2000. So definitely it's an area of concern for journalists, as you said. Um, you know, there's no respect from from the gangs um, about your, your safety or who you are or where you're coming from. doesn't matter if you're an American, the color of your skin, nothing. You could just be um, part of the collateral damage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, we wrote that piece about, um, and I actually ended up talking to a journalist who um, is currently in hiding, um, you know, Bill because of what's happened to him and sense of being targeted. Um, and he was actually, you know, doing an investigative piece on um, involving the killing of a, of a police officer. Mm -hmm. um, you know, who's, was well-known and his father was, was, was quite infamous. Um, mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden he found himself, you know, now being the, 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 the target. Um, you know, and one of the things that we do find, and me and my <laughs> older veteran journalists, um, you know, there's a new crop of journalists that are coming up. They're like social media, they've got their phones. Mm -hmm. um, but I always tell people that you have to be responsible. And so, you know, they, you know, they're in this unique sense that they grew up in the ghettos and these slums. They they know mm -hmm. these guys that are now running gangs because they grew up with them. And so they have a particular kind of access. Mm -hmm. But the thing about it is, is that, yeah, that access can turn on you at, at you mm -hmm. know, at any moment. Um, and what I find too in Haiti is that people actually do have very thin skins. Um, and so, mm -hmm. you know, and they often don't understand our jobs as journalists. I mean, I, I was talking to a source last night, you know, I said, you know, when people come at me and they come at me because I am Caribbean, I am Haitian, and you think mm -hmm. that you can talk to me a particular sort of way or bring a particular criticism that you won't bring somebody else in the in the in the foreign media. I mm -hmm. I just don't play that game. Um, and also, you would hear people when they're on the radio it's just, well, you know, you all need to help us. You all need to join our cause. And it's like, no, our jobs are journalists. Our jobs are to be objective, it, regardless of what our opinions are, whatever we're experiencing. It is like just put it out there. Let the chips fall where they may. Let the public decide if. You want to take what we're writing to use it for your cause. Do what you want to do, mm -hmm. but but don't bring me into that conversation. You know what I mean? Um, don't shoot the messenger, literally. You know, and that's what often that you that you have. So it's often this role that people just don't understand. I mean. You know, even in terms of the separation of between church and state, as we call it in the United States. I mean, I have mm -hmm. no control over the editorial pages of the Miami Herald. I don't write opinions. I, I'm very comfortable even putting myself in a story. Um, you know, there's a particular kind of writing that some people do in magazines like. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, we try to just keep you know, that barrier that's, that's, that's there. Um, and you can go in and, and have a, you can have an opinion about something, but then if you do your work as a journalist and you start talking to different people, you know, you sometimes often you find that your theory is not what is, you know, or what you thought was the case is not the case. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that there, you know, journalists should not be targeted in any way, shape, form, or how, um, but I definitely think that there are lessons to be learned with for my fellow journalists, just in terms of how we, you know, to better keep yourself safe. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, just even me, I mean, there are things that I used to do in my younger years of the starting of my career where you're afraid to tell an editor no, that today I just don't, I, you know, I just mm -hmm. don't do it. 
Yes. Well, we've got Jonathan who's joining us from St. Martin. He says, St. Martin in the house, Caribbean Antilles. Uh, Damien says, may I ask what happened to all the donations from the telethon after the Haiti earthquake? Uh, why was it never used? And where did the millions and millions go? Why no investigation? There was an investigation. You just didn't read my story. So <laughs> on the um, on the 10th anniversary of the Haiti earthquake, um, mm-hmm. I actually wrote uh, several stories about, you know, what happened and how billions of dollars were promised um, to Haiti and that money didn't come. And in uh, mm-hmm. the money that did come, most of it was used to keep people alive. It was like $1,500 per person. And think about the fact that you had a minimum of 1.5 million people who were in camps. Well, they need to drink water. They need to use latrine. So you had that mm-hmm. money. But you also had money that just basically went to these NGOs that were using it to rent houses for their staffers to hire staff to you know vehicles um very little if any of it even went to the haitian government um you know there is a corruption issue there but those are petrocaribe dollars venezuelan dollars those have nothing to do with the billions of dollars that the world promised and provided um contrary to what people think that the clinton foundation or the clintons had money no they did not um you know the monies were kept by countries who basically funneled those monies either through their development agencies or through um non-profit uh non-governmental organizations that were out of their you know that were out of their countries and so one of the biggest issues for instance was the question of housing so there was a lot of promises made that we're going to take people, the 1.5 million people who were homeless by this devastating 7.0 quake that killed over 300,000 people, and that they were going to give them into permanent housing. Well, there was an issue in the fact that um, Haitian law, you know, prevents people from owning government land. So that became this, 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 this point of tension. And at some point, D'Angelo said, listen, we're not going to go and invest money in bricks and mortar if the person we're going to put in these structures are not going to be able to own the land underneath it. And because everybody wanted to show that they were reaching out to poor people, what happened? You had middle class people who were homeowners, who had documents that the proof they owned their homes that had completely collapsed, that needed the homes too. But people didn't want to, t- they didn't want to do that because it just wasn't sexy. It just didn't make for good headlines. And people would say, oh my God, here's this poor country, but you're helping the people that are rich. Not really, but you know what I mean? If you wanted to really show, you know, here's progress and here's what's mm-hmm. being done. That was a group that you could have targeted, you could have focused on. And I've talked to people since then who says they wish they had done that. But there was just so much pressure to like raise the poor, to do this, to do that, and not thinking about the structural issues. And I have to tell you that mm-hmm. this isn't just a problem that's unique to Haiti. I ran into this in Barbuda when I went a couple of years ago to cover the quake. Uh, I'm sorry, the hurricane there. You know, there were people in Barbuda who had property, who had homes, who lost their homes in this hurricane. And because of this antiquated slavery law in terms of how land was passed down, they honestly had no proof um, to go to a bank to say, I own this house, so I should be able to get a loan or I should be able Mm. to get assistance. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this whole issue of land ownership, it's it's an issue in many places, you know, in the Caribbean, because we pass land down from generation to generation, but somewhere along the line, there was never any sort of formal paper. So today, when you have to go to a bank, you need to basically present proof because they want collateral. So, so yeah, so the thing with, you know, in terms of Haiti and the, and the billions that were promised, yes, everybody 
everybody got on the hype and they all wanted to say, here's what we're going to do. But, you know, the late Dr. Paul Farmer, who passed away earlier this year, you know, he was the special mm-hmm. envoy for the United Nations after the earthquake. And his office for the 10th anniversary actually did do an investigation where they tracked you know, the, 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 the promises and, and, and how much of that money actually made it to Haiti and where it went. And we wrote that story um, mm-hmm. along with other stories. But the reality is, is that very few of it um, even made it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, truly, truly amazing and lots of interesting information. Let's talk a little bit before um, we sort of look at some of the other Caribbean islands. I definitely want to talk to you about BVI and that situation there. Um, we've seen an uptick in, you know, uh, I guess the re- last year for sure, um, of migration, Cuba, lots and lots of Cubans are leaving. Uh, we've had an issue here in the Cayman Islands where a lot of them are actually coming here and we have some extremely high numbers compared to what we would traditionally have. And um, Haitians are also taken to the high seas to try to you know, make it to the US or anywhere else for better opportunities. Tell us a little bit about that situation and what your observations have been. I read your article about how they're actually even turning to voodoo to help guide their journeys. And can I ask you a question about this particular spelling of voodoo? Is that how it's spelled? Yeah. So so when you do the V-O-O-D-O-O, that's yeah. like black magic that just evokes all of this sort of negative, you know, negative thing. So, um, and I was very happy that a couple of years ago, the Associated Press in their style book for American journalists in terms of, you know, the, the the spelling of certain words or acceptable mm-hmm. words or things like that, that they adopted this spelling of, um, of voodoo, you know, which is a French spelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and that way, you know, people are not automatically thinking that, oh my God, this is black magic or this is Wobia or, you know, what have you. I mean, we have to, you know, I, I said to an editor the other day, I said, look, just like you Americans have your old wives tales, you know, you mm-hmm. know the things that don't let a black cat cross you. Like, where did that come from? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to respect people and respect what they believe in and 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 you know voodoo has been recognized as a religion um it's part of the culture in haiti whether you believe it or not the things that people do or they subscribe to and it, that's where it's rooted in and as one of the um priests in there says that haiti is not the, the land of amen but it's the land of Aibobo, which basically speaks to the fact that this haitian revolution was sparked by a voodoo priest bookman who actually was a slave that came to haiti from jamaica mm-hmm. um, you know from africa to jamaica to haiti and before the launching of the revolution, he basically had the ceremony um, because this is what, you know, before Christianity was introduced to to, to us as, as, as Africans, you know, we, we had our own deities in our in, in our own ways. Um, and so this has continued to guide them. I mean, I, you know, it was interesting because when I was in the Northwest reporting on the story about the boats, everybody was just sort of mentioning this kind of in passing, right? And, and I think mm-hmm. the first time this guy was like, I was like, well, how was these trips on these boats? And then he's saying, well, the men are here, but the women are there and the men and women can't stick together. So what do you mean the men and the women can't stick together? Why? What is this? You know, like mm-hmm. the liberal feminist me. And he's like, well, no, 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 because of the magi. I said, you mean the magi? He's like, yeah, so magi is like Creole for magic. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, tell me more about this. So when mm-hmm. I start, as I started digging, I started realizing that you know, there are things that they employ because here's the deal. I'm sitting in my house in November and I get a text from my colleague, David Goodhue, that says, hey, a boatload of Haitians just landed. Where? Uh-huh. In the Keys. Huh? What? I mean, uh-huh. and we are scratching our heads trying to remember the last time 
a Haitian boat actually made it through the Coast Guard, through the Florida Straits to get this far. Mm -hmm. And then December 24th, another boat lands. And then in January, Hmm. another boat lands. And then after that, another boat. And then in March, two boats, the last of which was 356. So Hmm. we were saying like, yo, what is going on here? How Mm -hmm. are these boats, you know, getting through? So I did a story, you know, prior to all of this about the fact that the changing tactics and how they were using Cuban waters, they were hugging the Cuban coastline. And remember, Cuba's 90 miles from from the Florida Keys. And so Mm -hmm. when they had on, after they were leaving Cuban waters, they turned on the and they make a run for it. But mm-hmm. as I, you know, on the ground in Haiti, I'm talking to people and they're telling me, nah, it's not the engines. This is, this is it. You know, you see you, Amidon, which is what they refer to the Coast Guard as an Alexander Hamilton, the founder of the force. And he had a cutter named after him. Um, you know, it's like, yeah, you see the wave, you you know, you wave a flag. Now, why do you, why do you wave this handkerchief? What color is this handkerchief? They're, they're they're very mm-hmm. limited in their details because mm-hmm. it is there's a lot of secrecy that's shrouded around it. But this is their belief, right? Um, the same way how if we're gonna go on a journey, we pray to God and mm-hmm. you know we ask for guidance. So with them, they go and they seek the spiritual armor, uh, you know. But today, yes, when you hear the drums beating in this part of the country, you can rest assured that a mic uh, a boat is about to launch. Hmm. So they go through this whole ritual. Um, of different things that they do in order to, uh, they say they can give themselves a safe voyage. So you These talk are the about people the people who are leading protection. the trip. Yeah. So these are the people right. who are leading the trip. So in order to get spiritual protection, so along with getting your engines, along with getting your sails, along with getting uh-huh. your fuel, you know what? They go and see a, a voodoo priest of their choosing. Um, and yes, they have a ritual. Um, and then even the, the boat itself goes through a ritual and, and, and it's blessed in order for a safe journey. Very interesting. Porn of rum, citrus scented cologne named oh, the Florida, Florida water, water, which is so funny. It <laughs> actually sacrifice. exists. Yes. Um, they've got uh, conditions for the void. So no sexual relations on board, which would make sense. Men and women sit separately, personal good luck charms and amulets not allowed yes. because they would conflict with spiritual purification rituals that the boat has already received. Wow. I mean, when you think about some of these things, right, there's like very practical explanation, no sexual relations on board, because yeah. you start doing that, you're going to end up having a fight. Um, you know, people aren't allowed to smoke. Only the person who's doing the voyage is allowed to smoke. Of course, because if somebody smokes, the, the, the cigarette is going to, you know, you can burn down the boat. I mean, so there's these yeah. practical rationales, but for them and their spiritual minds and what they believe in, mm-hmm. these also have other, they have other meanings. And so that's what it is. It, for me, I wanted to find a way to, to, to bring this aspect of the culture um, in a very balanced and respectful way and mm-hmm. to have people understand, like, here's a story that you have never heard of of you or you don't know. Um, but this is what people, you know, when they're going into these, they may not have a life vest, but they've got the spiritual armor that they really believe is going to allow them to get through. Mm-hmm. So you have some um, information here about the apprehensions of migrants after landing by sea yeah. in Florida. You compare Haiti and Cuba because obviously those are the two Caribbean nations that are doing this, I guess, the most. Is, is anybody else? 
getting in a boat. I know we, we've reported on between Venezuela and Trinidad, that route, but into so the U.S. is it in primarily? Puerto Rico. So in Puerto Rico, we have another chart on another story where you can see the Puerto Rican numbers and you can see there are people from, you know, the Netherlands, there are Brazilians, there are Venezuelans, and you see the top three are um, Haitians, um, Dominicans, and, and, and Venezuelans. They're going through that route um, mm -hmm. through the Mona Passage. And a lot of Venezuelans are ending up the USVI. But for the Florida Keys, it's basically Haitians and Cubans. And basically, we're back to the future. We are once again mm -hmm. back in the 90s where we had um, both Haiti and Cuba were both, you know, having political issues in, in unrest. And mm -hmm. as a result, you saw it play itself out on the high seas. And, you know, we had the largest Haitian, you know, <laughs> in crisis. We had over 40,000 people at the Guantanamo Bay Naval Base, you know, in, you know, in, in Cuba uh, after they were being picked up on you know u.s coast guard cutters and at the same time we have people coming over from cuba on rafts and so yesterday for instance while the cubans had this boat that grounded in cuba because it started taking on water and it had 800 haitian migrants on board there were three landings of cubans in the florida keys you know three different landings so where they landed and at the same time we've had over 40,000 cubans to cross the u.s southern border you know with mexico um mm -hmm. in the last year so um what we're seeing there is this shift to where Cubans are coming over by land. And, and the numbers for Haitians, too, there's still more Haitians that are crossing over for the U.S. southern border, but they're different. Those Haitians that are crossing over, they've been living somewhere in South America um, mm -hmm. for for years after the, for, after the earthquake. They're not necessarily coming directly from Haiti. You may right. have one or two, but, but the people that are getting on a boat are coming from Haiti. The people that are coming at the southern border are essentially coming from third countries in Latin America. Hmm. Wow. So since uh, November 18th, more than 1,400 Haitians have landed on U.S. soil with both crossings um, arriving in the Florida Keys and the U.S. territory of Puerto Rico. Another 55,000 plus have been stopped at sea and returned to Haiti. So what is the, the U.S. position um, when you say that they've been stopped at sea and returned to Haiti? Do they just turn them back in their little rickety boats? Are they picking them up and sending them back on a plane? Like how are no. they repatriating? So if you're if you're stopped at sea, and which was um, the USDHS declared this um, after the assassination that any Cubans or well any migrants, but in, in our case that means Cubans and Haitians who are stopped at sea, caught at sea, will be returned back to their home country. So that means that they are stopped by the U.S. Coast Guard and then they are put on U.S. US Coast Guard cutters and then they are returned on U.S. Coast Guard cutters. When they are picked up in Cuba or they're picked up in the Bahamas um, or the Turks and Caicos, um, they are flown back. Um, or at the U.S. southern border, they're flown back. So there's over 20,000, for instance, who have been flown back to Haiti after crossing the U.S. southern border, and they were expelled on this thing called Title 42, where basically they don't have any chance of applying um, or requesting asylum. It's a very quick turnaround. So that's so that ties. But those the the the, the sea crossings are all by cutter by boat. They're not, and they're not kept on their boat because oftentimes their boats are very unsafe. Their boats are taking mm -hmm. on water. Um, it's overcrowded, overloaded. These are not the boats that you want to be trying to tug back to, to anywhere. Mm -hmm. Wow. And you say it's a very, it's a very swift process. So one of the criticisms here in the Cayman Islands is the repatriation even of Cubans seems to be taken forever. Um, you know, we do have a process where they can apply for political asylum 
Um, and that process seems to be very protracted and just takes a long time. The government now, given the recent increase in numbers, has made a commitment to, you know, try to speed up the process. But um, it's interesting. Well, that's because of asylum. I mean, because what you guys are doing in the Cayman Islands is that you do have a process where you're allowing them to do it. The United States also has a process. But what's happening here in the U.S. is that after the pandemic, the U.S. under Trump evoked something called Title 42 as a public health law that basically says your entrance into the United States poses a public health health threat and we can't have you there. So that's the criticism from immigration advocates, which is that people who are running from you know persecution, who are seeking asylum in the United States are not being afforded that opportunity because the minute they cross, they are picked up, they're arrested, they're detained, and they're immediately put on a plane and they are sent back um, mm -hmm. to their countries. Now, in terms of those that are picked up at sea, they haven't made it into US, you know, into the US territorial waters. And so they present a there's a safety hazard there. And, you know, one of the things that we've been trying to get at, and we're being told by migrants is that they are not asked um, if they have a fear of persecution, if they're returned back. I mean, it used to be where the Coast Guard was providing those sort of um, uh, interviews on board. They, I'm told they are. Migrants are telling us that they, that, you know, that they aren't. At the same time, there's a lot of confusion about the decisions that are being made in terms of who gets in and who doesn't get in. And let me tell you, getting in is not home free. So what's the example of that? So in March, we had a boat with 356 Haitians that arrived in the U.S. territorial waters off Florida Keys. Mm -hmm. um, in the first hour that the boat was there, you had 158 Haitians who jumped overboard and try to swim the 200 yards and these very rough seas to the shoreline. Um, I mean, eventually, mostly all of them had to get rescued by U.S. authorities because the waters were just too rough. Other people were sitting on board this boat waiting to see, you know, did these other people make it and whether or not I should jump? Some people couldn't because they were too weak or they couldn't swim. And then when U.S. authorities came in, they told them, you know, do not jump, just, just stay. So the Haitians mm -hmm. stayed thinking that they were going to be brought in um, and, you know, and detained, but that they would uh -huh. get a chance to get out and, you know, and at some point, you know, make a pledge for a plea for asylum or what have you. But that didn't happen. I mean, the U.S., basically the 198 that were still on board that boat, they were turned around. They were put, they were transferred to a U.S. cutter, Coast Guard cutter, and then they were taken back to Haiti. And so the criticism from advocates has been that today the U.S. is practicing some form of wet foot, dry foot policy that went away under the Obama administration that once guided the decision between Haitians and Cubans, that Cubans who basically made it onto land got to stay and those who were picked up at sea and any other mm -hmm. migrants, including Haitians, were returned back to their home countries. Well, that policy went away. But what we're seeing today is that for some migrants who do make it into the U.S. territorial waters, they get to stay and others get to turn, they get turned back. Well, we just had a boat last week, no, on Tuesday, actually, um, that was off of Isla Mojarada in the, in the Keys. And they, are, they were not allowed in. They were basically, they're being returned back to Haiti. Mm. So different, different strokes for different folks. I think today one of the biggest criticism is the U.S. immigration policy is just unclear, and that it did that 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 it lacks clarity. I mean, we don't even know the 1,400 that arrived here. Where are they? Are they in detention centers still? Have they been paroled? If they've been paroled, under what conditions have they been paroled? Are they in a situation where they can even apply for asylum, or is the parole so short that they actually have no way of applying for asylum, and that at the next time they go to check in with immigration authorities, they're basically put on the plane and sent back to Haiti? Wow. Um, it's hard to believe that people actually disappear um, in, in the U.S., but uh, Marshall makes a comment. He says he gets the boat that capsized 
didn't uh, they didn't get the the right voodoo blessings and maybe that's what happened there. Well, this is a very perilous journey. I mean, people should it's, not. It's Demona Passage is one of it, it's one of the most dangerous passages, um, sea passages, and the ocean is vast. I mean, I went a couple of you know weeks ago. I was up in a in in a airplane with the Coast Guard, um, and we were right you know three hundred feet above the water flying over the Bahamas, you know, some of those islands in the Bahamas. And you, and you, when you're looking at that, you realize just how vast it is. And, and, and people are, you know, they're in boats, especially the ones that come from the Dominican Republic. These are not big boats. These are almost like canoes, you know? Um, and so it's, people do die. They die. They disappear. Mm -hmm. Some of them, some of them, you know, die without even a trace. Um, and so, yeah, you know, you 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 pray for things and you pray that things won't happen and bad things still happens to you know to you that's 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 regardless of voodoo or our christian beliefs or whatever it is um you know when you take on something that is risky the reason why it's called risky is because um there's a percentage that you will not a high percentage you will not succeed mm. wow all right, um, let's uh, switch gears a little bit here and talk about the situation in BVI, which the Miami Herald actually broke the story about the arrest of um, the prime, is he a prime minister? Premier. 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 Yeah, Premier. Um, and uh, tell us a little bit what you know about this. Your article about him being a little crook. Um, was that's, what his fourth, that's what his I fourth know. director called him. I, I mean, he's like, my premier is a little crook, you know? know. Um, it was, funny. yeah, it was just so shocking when you're going through it. I mean, gosh, it's like, oh, look, I am from the Turks and Caicos, so we all know, you know, the last time that this happened and where it happened and, and, mm -hmm. and, and what happened. So, you know, I think all of us as Caribbean people were just like, oh my God, are you serious? Not again. Are you for real? Yeah. Like, not again. People are looking at us and they're like, here we go. And this is a British territory. So, mm -hmm. you know, Turks Island came in Bermuda, <laughs> you know, yes. we're all in this, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so that was the thing. It was like, okay. So, um, so my colleague, Jay Weaver, who covers federal courts, um, I have to, definitely credit him because he got the tip and and mm -hmm. by the time that the the note was going around from the governor of bvi the story was already up because mm -hmm. um, because jr had already got this tip he's very plugged in it was like yo this is coming in and i don't even think that he really knew how this was going to like explode and mm -hmm. of course he's writing it from the perspective of okay u.s authorities just nabbed this foreign leader but i'm like no 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 we need to I, we need context here like this is a, okay this is a foreign leader but this is the leader of a british territory this is the second time in x number of years since norman saunders that this has happened this Mm -hmm. It's also sort of playing itself out similarly because that Norman Saunders was the first uh, foreign leader to be arrested under U.S. drug laws uh, for breaking U.S. drug laws. And it happened, you know, in another sting operation in Miami. This happened in a sting operation, mm -hmm. you know, in Opelaka, which is basically the outskirts of Miami, uh, mm -hmm. where he left this, this, this cruise conference to go check on the money. Um and so, of course, you know, his lawyers most likely will probably argue entrapment um, because when, you know, when you read the indictment um, and how a lot of this went down, I mean, there's a line in there where he says, listen, I spent 20 years trying to get to this position and I'm not going to lose it in 20, in 20 minutes. Well, that's almost kind of what happened. I mean, and he is very suspicious 
like when he's talking to these people because he's like the British are out to get me. They've been trying to mm -hmm. get me for years, you know, and at this time he is already the subject of a commission inquiry, his government as well as other governments, but there's a lot of focus on his governments and contracts and things that they've done. But yet, you know, it's like still chugging along and while they're driving out, um, you know, to, to, to this place, to, to, to meet this, 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 this person that's really like a mole. Again, he talks about the fact that the British doesn't pay him enough. And then when he gets there and he's meeting with the guy who again is a, is a plant. Um, it's not who he says he is. He's not a real member of a, of a, of a Mexican cartel as, as it's made out to seem. Um, he's still like suspicious and still want to make sure that the guy, you um, know, this isn't a setup, right? And a guy gives him a response to basically assures him that no, this isn't a setup, but it's like, guys, your instinct, your instinct is telling you like, yo, something isn't right. But, um, you know, and of course he gets pulled into this because you have the port director. Well, the allegations are that the port director and then her son, you know, they're the ones that are at the front of, you know, at the front of this, of, of, of this thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then what's this? Oh yeah. His nickname was coach. That was, that was his nickname, the, the BVI premier. So, yeah. um, after his arrest, he was um, saying that he should get immunity. And it's very interesting, folks, because we should see how, you know, the U.S. basically says, you're just a local leader of a, of a, of a place. Um, you're not a sovereign nation. You're not a head of state of a sovereign nation. So that definition applies to the premier of Cayman. Bermuda, mm -hmm. Turks and Caicos, that in the eyes of the United States, we are not sovereign countries. Um, and I, because I asked somebody, I said, well, okay, so the head of state is Queen Elizabeth, but so she's still the head of state, but Jamaica and Jamaica's independence. So you're telling me that Jamaica, the Jamaican prime minister is just a local leader of a, you know, of a, of a place because the head of state is the Queen of England. So it's a very interesting definition in terms of how the United States is defining this issue of immunity and sovereignty for and, and leadership um and i haven't explored it but i think it's worth an exploration there and 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 you know because it came up in the norman saunders case many years ago and in um and in this argument with the bvi premier they looked at noriega but that was that was a different situation because noriega was a de facto leader of an independent country right um, but anyway, long story short, look, BVI not wanting to get kicked out and have a British takeover. They went and formed this coalition government. Um, they removed him as premier. So one can argue that, you know, that, that, that whole argument is kind of moot right now. His bond has been set. So the question mm -hmm. today is whether or not he's going to be able to make bond. Um, I think they were probably depending, uh, you know, if he was still premier, that maybe BVI would have taken up the tap. Um, the, the port director still, she's has a public defender, which basically is an indication where she's saying, look, I don't have any money, um, to hire a private attorney. Um, I think that's going to be another issue that's going to come up because there's some debate in terms of whether or not she can afford a private attorney or not. But the money that you also have, you have to prove to the U S government that it's not money that's ill gained, that it's money mm -hmm. that you gained legally that you're going to be using for your defense. Mm. Mm -hmm. So he was just back in court, yeah, just a few days ago, where basically, okay, so 
the you know he he will be given bond but he has to come up with the money for the bond he has to come up with the collateral to secure you know that million dollar bond and there's going to be and there's a cash amount that he's also going to have to flip that he's going to have to come out with hmm it was i gotta tell you when i was reading the indictment papers it read like a this is going to be an hbo movie <laughs> you know you know what it reminded of um, um with our jamaican um Dennis. yes yes no no not Dennis. Not, not um, Dennis. reggae artist oh um, bougie Bu bougie okay, yeah. okay. it was like a, like well, i remember i remember because i broke that story when bougie was arrested um in miami and it was like the scene out of a you know out of a video and a whole like taking a knife out you know checking the product i mean like you know, car pulling up. And yeah, so that was the whole way that this whole indictment also kind of, you know, kind of read like in slow motion and you're reading it. And it's almost like, even if you didn't know what happened at the end, you see what's coming and it's just, uh -huh. just not seeing it. Yeah. Is there any indication as to why they targeted him? Was it just because he... I don't, I don't know. I mean, you know, so again, we, we haven't seen that yet. And, and, and was it a target of him or was it, does it speak to something larger there at BVI? Look, you know, BVI has, has, has been um, the target of corruption allegations for years. That's what led to a commission of inquiry. Okay. Um, and in this commission of inquiry, while you know, a lot of us have focused on this premier and his governance of the island. The reality is, is that the Commission of Inquiry looked at various gov governments that had been in charge of the BVI and things that were taking hanky-panky that was taking place. And they even recommended that there should be further investigations for even criminal prosecution in some of these areas like immigration um, and, and, you know, in customs. So mm -hmm. my belief has to be that U.S. authorities got wind of other deals or something mm -hmm. else that basically put this tiny island in the Caribbean on their radar and said, hey, listen, we, we, we need to look into this. I know mm -hmm. like, you know, in the case of Turks and Caicos, one of the issues was that this was at the heyday of drug trafficking and the drugs were coming into mm -hmm. Miami and they were coming from the Caribbean. And at this point, mm -hmm. people who, whose job it is to track this stuff were noticing things that were happening. BVI is very close to Puerto Rico um, mm -hmm. and either somebody got a tip or there were things that had been happening there out of the public view that we do not yet know or haven't yet uncovered, but will probably come out if there's any sort of trial when the you know U.S. government makes their case that would basically mm -hmm. put this in context where they will argue, no, we didn't target this guy, but you know there were things that were happening that gave rise to concern, and so you know this was part of an investigation. And then you always get into that murkiness, right? Like entrapment, you know, right. um, did, did, you know, if, if you did not present this opportunity, would this person find themselves in this position or not? And this has always been a legal argument that is brought up and oftentimes it gets thrown out of the courts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's so interesting that the son of the port director actually said to your point, He's like, oh, I've been doing this for 20 years. Over yeah, 20 years. So I don't he, use, but I've been doing, oh but I've been doing God. this. Yeah. So he's he still gave so much information. I thought yeah. these people are total strangers. It's almost like they had no degree of common sense as, yeah. you know, alleged conspirators and criminals. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't meet a total stranger. And if I were doing something illegal, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I've been doing this for 20 years. Let me give some bragging but rights I, and some props. And <laughs> yeah, but I think it's kind of like that island mentality, right? We all know each other. And oftentimes yeah. we just sort of take it for granted. And everybody knows what's going on or what everybody's up to. And so people just are very chatty, you know? And at this point, it was just like you were just chatty with the wrong people.
that's for sure. <laughs> what a mess. So we, we will continue to wait to see what will happen with Andrew Fahi, uh, again, former premier of the British Virgin Islands, who was taken into custody along with um, his port director and her son. I was a bit surprised when I first heard port director. For some reason, I assumed it was a man. And when I heard that it was a woman, I was just like, are you kidding me? The story just got, now it's a Lifetime movie. <laughs> It's not just HBO. It just got even more interesting. So the um, Drug Enforcement Administration in the U.S., again, in case you hadn't read this, you'd been living in a hole, arrested him at the Miami Opelika um, Executive Airport. What a hot mess, as we say here in the Cayman Islands. So what else, um, Jackie, is on your radar we can expect from you coming up? Um, I am going to... um continue to do an installment of my deadly voyages. Um, if anybody's mm -hmm. in Miami on June 17th, we're actually going to have a community discussion um, about this migration crisis, but we're going to do something a little interesting and different. We're going to mm -hmm. start off with a screening of a film called Cargo. It's a 2017 mm -hmm. film by a Bahamian filmmaker, um, Kareem Mortimer. He's very talented. And when I first saw this, because it premiered in Miami at the film festival, I was like, oh my God, this is such a real depiction of what happens um, on these, you know, on these voyages go, go wrong. And in fact, and, and given the xenophobia that exists in the Bahamas toward Haitian migrants, I thought it was very courageous of, of him not to do the easy thing, not to do a story that focuses on the xenophobia, but a story that was more sympathetic to 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 the aspect of, of, of Haitian migration, you know. So we're gonna we're gonna open it up and he's actually gonna join us um, mm -hmm. for this discussion. We're gonna have this at UM and so it's myself, mm -hmm. him, um, we're gonna have um, some activists in, in, in in this arena, and it's going to be moderated by Edwidge Santika, who's a very well-known and respected Haitian-American writer, and she wrote a book called Brother, I'm Dying, and it, um, it was about her own experience with the U.S. immigration system when her uncle fled Haiti, you know, in the early 2000s, trying to seek asylum in the United States, and he was thrown into a detention center here um, in the U.S. Um, so, so we'll have that on June 17th, but prior to that, I'll have another installment on, on this. Um, you can look for more in, in respect to the Haitian um, assassination of President Jovenel Moise. In fact, while I was on here, one of my colleagues just called me, and most likely that's what he called me about. Mm -hmm. So we are continuing to to work on that story and continue to try to uncover the truth for that story for, for our readers and, and, you know, and for others who want to know how does a president um, end up getting killed um, in his own bedroom in the middle of the night. Uh, by and the implications involve some foreign, you know, former military soldiers. Mm. Wow. So um, as usual, folks, um, Jackie, uh, Jacqueline Charles, who writes for the Miami Herald again, um, a Pulitzer Prize finalist for her coverage on the Haiti earthquake back in 2010. She's actually been awarded in 2018 the Maria Moores at Cabot Prize, uh, a prestigious writer. And um, she's keeping people definitely in Miami and all over the U.S. and the Caribbean as well, really, really informed with her pieces. Um, I enjoy reading your pieces. Anytime I get an alert, uh, Jackie from yeah. Miami Herald that there's a new story up and it has your name attached to it. I make sure I read it. <laughs> oh, thank you. I think I need to come to Cayman and do my follow up on that whole FIFA scandal, right? Because I, I, I keep saying to myself, where are we with that? <laughs> that was my last time in Cayman. Well, listen, we asking the same question. Where are we with that? Because um, Jeff, Jeff Webb seems like 
he's probably going to walk away and never serve a day in jail. He's like the Teflon Don. I, I, yeah. So I need to go sure. back and, and and look into that and see what's going on. Uh, ask yeah. officials in my in Atlanta, I guess, where he's he. Yeah. Uh, I don't even know what what's next for him. I mean, it's been put off about twenty gazillion times. I know it's feeling <laughs> like the Turks and Caicos, come, you know, criminal investigation court hearing there. Yeah, you know, he's, he's yeah. got the luck of the Irish. But anyway, Jackie, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to spend a little bit of us here uh, with us here this morning, um, or Cayman Islands audience, and we have international audience as well. Really hope that you guys enjoyed um, Jackie in her wealth of information. Jared says the BVI governor uh, is so quiet and they aren't guilty for the lack of security in the BVI as if they aren't guilty for the lack of security in the BVI. So, you know, this BVI case did raise a lot of questions. Um, you know, the, the people in the country obviously do not want the British government to take over. So that was interesting. We had some of them as guests in a program a few weeks back and they continue, I think, to protest. I don't know that a final decision has been made. Well, that's what I'm waiting to say. And I think the British, you know, we can talk about that another time, but I think the yeah. British are in a very tight spot here. Maybe they're waiting till after the Queen's Jubilee to make a decision, but with everything um, which has taken place in terms of, you know, you know, what's going on in the world, reparations, yeah. colonialism, you know, all of this. I think, yeah, the Brits today are like, oh, okay. This, this is not like when they, you know, put jerks and cakes under direct rule a couple of years ago. Yeah. But, you know, again, Different given times. that our commission of inquiry was small pay, you know, the investigative report was small compared to this investigative report. Mm -hmm. um, I think everybody in the Caribbean is also looking at this to see like, okay, Whatever decision comes down, how's that? How does that compare to other decisions that have happened? Mm -hmm. I, I would not want to be in their position. Yeah, yeah, it's not comfortable. Okay, Jackie, thank you so much. Thank really you. Appreciate it. Have a good one. All right. Bye. All right. So, my dear, uh, you guys are listening to another segment of the Cold Hard Truth. Um, you know, we collaborate with a lot of people. So, Jacqueline Charles, like I said, I had the opportunity to meet her over two years ago, and she's one of the um, persons in media that we collaborate regionally with. Uh, she is indeed uh, a wealth of, of information. Um, amazing, quite frankly, um, in the stuff that she covers. Um, so much to be quite honest. And we do have other media that um, in the region that we collaborate as, with as well, including Jamaica. And um, yeah, it's, it's super interesting. You know, journalism, she kind of highlighted that there's a new style of journalism, which we are a part of that, um, where you can just grab your, your iPhone or grab your phone and you're on the spot and you're recording stuff as it happens. Uh, the world of journalism has changed. Um, what Jackie does is Jackie writes very, very in-depth pieces. If you ever go and you look at her profile on Miami Herald, you can see the pieces that she writes. She does a lot of research and she digs really, really deep, especially in Haiti. She has a really, really good understanding of a lot of the dynamics of what is happening in Haiti. Uh, like she said, she's entrenched in the Caribbean. She's, uh, you know, one parent from TCI, uh, one from Haiti. She's got connections um, in Cuba and just really all over the region. So it is, uh, it is super, super interesting. Um, here's another article she did on April the 26th, talked about COVID-19 and the Ukraine situation and affecting food security in the Caribbean. So uh, I was just speaking to one of our writers, quite interestingly enough, um, you know, who was um, just saying that she's having, let me just see if she can actually pop onto the conversation. 
she's having some issues sourcing baby formula. We were just talking about this the other day. And, you know, we didn't know of anyone directly being impacted by this. At least I didn't think I knew anyone. And lo and behold, Renee has just said she is having to give her baby milk because she can't get formula. And, you know, she can't get certainly the formula that he was using. Um, and he's not even six months old yet. And it's not recommended that any babies under six months, um, you know, can, can get milk. Uh, you know, these are issues that we think we're um, in isolation sort of with or from, but the truth of the matter is we're not that far from, it's like two degrees of separation, right? Where we know someone who is um, in that situation. Mm-mm-mm. What a match. She's, she's going to pop in and tell us a little bit about her situation. So let me just read some of your comments in the interim. So Wanda says, really enjoyed your conversation with Jacqueline Charles. Thank you so much, Wanda. Good morning to Paul. How are you? He's joining us from uh, Bermuda. So good to see you. Um, Jared said the former premier is still an elected representative of BVI. Um, have they not removed him yet? <laughs> I would have thought the BVI would have would have done what they needed to do. I mean, they've removed him definitely as premier, but what does it take for him to be removed as an elected official? I don't know if that formality has taken place yet or not, but uh, really, really interesting observation. So let's uh, chat with Renee for a few minutes. Good morning, Renee. Hi, Sandy. How are you? I'm okay. Good morning, I'm doing well, thanks. So I was just telling your listeners that I had no idea. I mean, we actually talked about the situation last week and the struggles of, um, you know, people in the U.S. actually getting access to baby formula because of the shutdown of the Abbott plant and the ensuing, you know, um, windfall of baby formula shortage. But I didn't know anybody who was dealing with this until you mentioned it this morning. So tell us a little bit about how this shortage has impacted you. Well, for one, um, I have been giving my baby a specific formula, but I had to change it this week because I couldn't get that one. Mm -hmm. um, up to yesterday, I couldn't get it at all, get any at all. So last night I had to actually give him milk, regular milk. Wow. So, and he was quite fussy, so I'm not even sure if it's bothering him. Oh so God. it's really bad. Yeah. So when you go to, where, where do you normally go to shop? We're talking about places like Publix, Walmart. Yes. Uh-huh. So you're going to these stores and they have no baby formula. The shelves are empty. Wow. And I'm, I'm, it's interesting that you mentioned because, um, you know, even with my daughter, she had to have formula as she was a preemie. And so there were reasons why she needed to get formula and you put them on a particular one. And, and sometimes that one doesn't work out and you have to, um, you know, try a different formula. And when they get used to something and then you have to switch it up on them, it can really impact their digestive tract. So you're yes. saying that today, you know, he's not the happiest baby in the world. No. And because he's having milk for the first time. So I, can only imagine what's happening. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in, in typical Caribbean fashion, someone wants to know why can't you breastfeed? So people always ask this question and I find it so interesting, especially when it comes to women. Well, because I would think well women for one, I don't have any milk, so I can't <laughs> give him what I don't have. 
Yeah, I think that the, I would love to, but I don't have any milk. Yeah, yeah. People people assume that everybody produces milk, and yeah. that everyone is able to breastfeed. And there are tons of reasons why women might not be able to breastfeed. Um, yeah. So yeah, if you don't have milk, then that's not a possibility. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so what 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 then are you looking at having to do? We're gonna see. I know you sent me um, the brand that you were using for him, and we're gonna certainly see if we can source it here in Cayman mm -hmm. and maybe some of it because. Um, you know, as far as I know, we're not having a massive shortage here. So if we can well, find the one, based on what I know, it's just the U.S. I'm not sure why, but um, they have been importing, but it hasn't been distributed widely as yet. Mm -hmm. Um. So Kimaria uh, wants to know how old your baby is. So he's not six months yet. No. Yes, he is. He's seven months. He's now seven months. Okay. Yeah. Has he started eating anything else, or he's still? Pretty much. Yes, yeah, so I'm giving him um, other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the formula, to be very, very clear, one of the reasons why um, formula is actually important, especially if you can't breastfeed, is it has a very balanced um, amount of nutrients in it for young babies, what they need to develop their brains and other, you know, vital aspects of infant development. Um, so yes, and especially for nice, you want to... You don't want to feed, although he's eating other stuff, I can't give him those at night. So the formula works for night, really. Mm -hmm. It works mm -hmm. best for night. Yes. Well, we're going to see if we can help you out, um, Renee, by, um, you know, seeing if we have that particular formula here. Maybe we can send it on Kiminer Ways with a friend yeah. and they can get it to you. Um, these are things that obviously cause uh, mothers to go through very stressful times with, with babies. And, you know, gosh, we didn't really see it coming, but here we are. Yes. And it's especially a problem for mothers with babies who can't have any, just any about anything. They have to have a specific formula. So it's really stressful for a lot of mothers. Mm-hmm. And uh, Renee, as you guys know, does a lot of the behind the scenes writing here on CMR. Um, she keeps us up to date, a lot of regional and even a lot of the local stuff because I've been getting so busy. I've been passing a lot of that on to her. So Renee, thank you so much for the um, the work that you do. Um, there's not really face to you, but you know, you're there making a real impact here on Cayman Mall Road. And uh, funny enough, I'm going to send you another article I need you to start working on. <laughs> No problem. There's, there's been this fire aboard a Carnival Freedom cruise ship, which is actually docked this morning um, in Turks and Caicos. So this is breaking news. Jackie actually just mentioned it, that she got a message um, from one of her colleagues about it. So um, Renee does a fantastic job of researching and pulling up different sources. And, um, you know, she's able to, to keep us all informed. So Renee, thank you very, very much. Um, you know, we uh, hope that you're able to get the situation sorted out soon. We'll see what we can do. Um, Misha says that there's a lot to breastfeeding. Milk doesn't just come out. She's shaking her head at the insensitivity of some people. Um, other people are suggesting he can get cornmeal and plantains already. I don't think a seven-month-old should be eating plantains. Well, they do. Um, um, in Jamaica, they do give them porridge. Yeah. Um, mm. Mm -mm. They make sure your stomach tough in the Caribbean, <laughs> eating what you should be before you, before you even get started. Um, yes, uh, what a mess. 
Mm -mm. Anyway, um, Renee, thank you so much for joining us on the program this morning. And no problem. Thank you, Sandy. All right, my dear. Take care. Yes, child. Y'all be like, feed that baby anything. <laughs> Throw him a steak. <laughs> He'll be okay. Here, honey, here's how you use that steak knife. Mm -mm -mm -mm. What a hot mess. I don't know what to say sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes the reason why I say honey child and what a hot mess, because I am left speechless by the things I see and the things I hear. Ooh, uh, you know that there is a little bit of logic behind um, not starting babies on solids too quickly. And it impacts uh, you later on in life, including even your chances of getting diabetes as an adult. Ding, 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 ding. Listen to me. You know, we have one of the highest rates of diabetes in the world, you Caribbean folks, that's us. And one of the leading factors, y'all need to look at what you're feeding your babies. You're feeding them solids too soon and too much of the wrong things early on as well. You might think porridge is healthy, but trust me, mm, mm, mm. I don't see nobody around here making a healthy porridge yet, talking about cornmeal. Ugh, if you have any idea what cornmeal does to you. Listen, um, but we love it. You know, I love cornmeal porridge. It's my favorite porridge, but it doesn't mean that it's the best thing for you. All right. So listen, um, in terms of shortages around the world, uh, India, actually, we talked about the wheat situation. So India has paused all wheat exports. Um, and now the next thing that they're doing is they're pausing um, or they're putting a, a big um, sort of, you know, not necessarily 100% stop, but they're they're putting a bit of, a, um, oh gosh, what do we call it? They're decreasing the supply and availability of sugar. Lord, you know, sugar and wheat we use to make breads around the world. So I don't know what's going to happen with this situation, but India is having issues just like everybody else in the world. And so now this is the next food that they're actually going to have um, as a limited export item. So the headline says sugar is the next food you might have a hard time getting your hands on as India announces it's limiting sugar exports. Wow. So they're going to now cap sugar exports at 10 million metric tons for the year through September. The government says that it's a move to ensure that domestic sugar availability and ensure price stability. So everybody's complaining about the increase in food prices and all this kind of stuff as though, as though Foster's Food Fair, Hurley's, or what's the other one called? What's the other supermarket? Foster's, Hurley's, oh, Kirk's, Kirk Market. As though those grocery stores have any real control <laughs> over pricing. India, the only way that they can control it is by stopping exports. So in India, food prices rose 8.38% on year in April, far outpacing the 0.85% on year rise in October. So now they're trying to decide, my gosh, how can we put a stop to this? Well, it turns out that India is actually a major sugar producer. And so they're going to start, they did wheat already, they're now going to start restricting sugar exports. And it's the latest protectionist move by an expanding list of countries to secure domestic food supplies. Now, I want to put a little pause right there. These countries have a move on the chessboard. So they can say, okay, we're not going to export it because we need to control and make it available for people in this country cheaper. 
what is Cayman exporting? We're not exporting anything. We don't have sugar. We don't have wheat. We don't have any of these commodities. And so when you talk about price stability impacting a huge country like India and China and America, you know, running out of baby food and all this sort of stuff, I want you all to try to understand the complexities of what this means for all of us. You're making demands on this government that they need to fix the price issue. Uh, tell us how exactly they're going to do that when it's not something that they can control. So in a statement on Tuesday, the Indian government said it's going to cap sugar exports at 10 million metric tons for this current marketing year, which runs through September, to ensure that domestic availability of the commodity and ensure what they say price stability. The restriction will start on June the 1st. So that's next week. And just FYI, India is the world's second largest producer and exporter of sugar after Brazil. So major importers of Indian sugar include Indonesia and Sri Lanka, poor Sri Lanka. They've been hit hard with all sorts of gas prices and turmoil and stuff as well. So the South Asian country exports 7.2 million tons of sugar uh, in the last marketing year, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And this is going to be well short of its new export cap. So they're not facing a sugar shortfall, but like most countries, they're looking to control food inflation. So food inflation in India has risen sharply in the last year, putting pressure on the government to soften the impact on the electorate. So just like here, y'all pressuring the government. In India, the people there are also pressuring the government, except they have a move on the chessboard. So what they have said um, to Reuters as of yesterday is that uncontrolled exports could create scarcity and local prices could spike during the festive season. So they have, you know, their festivities coming up. So India is actually the world's largest sugar consumer. <laughs> Imagine that. And celebrates its biggest festival, Diwali, in October of this year. So they want to make sure they got enough sugar for Diwali, too. International sugar prices have surged 20% in the last uh, 12 months due to various factors, including supply shocks and recovering demand from the pandemic. Boosting prices and a surge in global prices as the Guinness uh, are driving mills in Brazil to produce biofuel from sugar-based ethanol instead. So again, we talk about the environmental factors. Everything is just so intertwined and so interconnected. And uh, on May the 13th, they did a similar move with wheat export, which of course, you know, we use a lot of wheat to produce things like bread, some of our staples. So you can expect probably the prices to go up even more because of India's move. So prices of food and fertilizers have risen the most since 2008 due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So those of you who sit down on this program, you say, I don't care about Ukraine. I don't want to hear that. Just tell me local gossip. This is why we talk about these international issues, because everything has a knock-on effect. To our radio listeners, time to say goodbye to you all. Um, have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, big shout out to Bobo 89.1 FM. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Cold Hard Truth on Bobo 89.1 FM. 
Cayman's number one talk show is live weekdays from 7.30 a.m. Never miss an episode again. Watch anytime on CMR's Facebook and YouTube channels for the latest show episodes. Don't forget to follow us online on our social media channels. And visit CaymanMarlRoad.com for all the latest news and community happenings. All right, folks, I'm just going to wrap up this little bit of the conversation here about what's happening in India. So price of food, fertilization risen the most since 2008 due to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. This is according to the World Bank in their April report. Both countries, Ukraine and Russia, are major players in the global commodities market, accounting for much of the world's wheat, sunflower, oil, and energy. So this has sent U.S. inflation uh, to a four-decade high, with the consumer price index raising, uh, rising, sorry, by eight point, sorry, eight point three percent in April from a year ago. So listen, the pandemic was bad enough. Now we got this war in Ukraine. Mm-mm-mm. That's according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So we've got uh, food inflation. Some countries around the world restricting imports or exports including Indonesia, who's now banned the export of palm oil, which is the world's most widely consumed vegetable oil. So they've uh, banned that for three weeks. Argentina has also put a ban on exports of certain beef cuts. So I saw somebody stick up something about the price of salmon the other day. On um, They went Foster's and saw the price of salmon. And I'm telling you all, folks, it's only going to get worse. And there's some adjustments that we may have to make to our lives. I know nobody wants to make any adjustments. All of y'all want to continue eating steak and salmon and this and that. But, you know, ay, 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 the things that you might have to do. Donette says shortages and they're getting bigger. Uh, Maria says not having access to wheat will filter through to a lot of products as wheat is nearly in every item you buy. So in the next few months, there could be a shortage of a lot of items. Yes, I'm telling y'all, prepare yourselves. Don't say you didn't know. Because if you've been listening to CMR, then y'all know. Camaria says, I hope the Jamaican government sees all these food shortages and all the factories that they shut down, they will reopen. Well, I'm not sure why they shut them down, but I guess we're going to see. Sometimes it's not practical because of, you know, local labor costs and other things. Um, It's not practical to produce certain things locally, but this is now when you have to import it, you see where you are at the mercy of others. Mm, what a hot mess. Anyway, my good people, that is the end of the program. I need to go sort out something with an application. My QuickBooks application is being naughty. So I need to get on some tech support calls this morning. You guys have uh, an absolutely wonderful and fabulous day. Tomorrow is Friday. So what we're going to do on tomorrow's program, we have a little bit of open mic. Um, Mr. Uh, Speaker of the House, McKeever Bush, has said that he's going to come on the program tomorrow. So hopefully we'll get that sorted out. And then we're going to re-air in case you missed Impact Wednesday last night. We are going to re-air that for your listening pleasure as well. So Friday, the week went by so quick. You guys have a fantabulous one. And we will see you, God's willing, tomorrow morning at 7.30. And big shout out, by the way, to Miss Iva. She just messaged to say, Sandy, I left a bag of mangoes at your front door. Yippee-ki-yay. Who's going to be happy today? Me. You go out there and be happy too. Find your happy spot. Y'all have a beautiful day.